How do you win a competitive fantasy league with no starting pitchers? I'll ask Doug Dennis about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 12th. It's show number 32 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, discussing his winning no-starter strategy in the American League Tout Wars League, about the trade fallout in bullpens, and a look ahead to the 2023 bullpens, as well as his boons and banes. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including injuries to Orlando Arcia and Mike Moustakis, and a new home for Fran Reyes. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including lots of movement in Seattle, a surprise move and an anticipated debut in Oakland, and another weird injury in Boston. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Los Angeles third baseman Manuel Vargas. And in extra innings, I'll be having a talk with a regular fantasy manager, Woody Govan, from New Brunswick, Canada. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have a first on this edition of Baseball HQ Radio, and we are going to talk some baseball. For the first time on Baseball HQ Radio, we're going to have a guest who is not a fantasy baseball expert, other than me, of course. His name is Woody Govan. He lives in New Brunswick in Canada, and he won an appearance on this podcast by donating to a charity through Justin Mason's Potapalooza Potathon a couple of weekends back. All of the participants were asked to donate prizes, and I gave an appearance on the podcast. And Woody and I will talk some fantasy baseball in my extra inning segment in the back half of the show. In the first inning of the Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, bullpens columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me. How many leagues are you playing this year, Doug, and how are your teams doing so far? I am in five leagues, and I would say four of them are doing lousy. The only one that's not doing lousy is my uh, AL Tout Wars team. The rest of them are terrible. Have you had any hitters who have been generally successful across your teams? Not really. I mean, I was trying to think, like, who do I have across teams? You know, I have, like, Starling Marte across a lot of teams because I wanted steals, I guess, more than others. Um, I have catchers across some teams like uh, Wilson Contreras, but then also Tyler Stevenson, who's pretty much done, you know, for the year. Um, and then some low-level guys. I seem to have a lot of the same low-level guys like Cavan Biggio and, you know, Nick Madrigal. And, you know, and those guys all are pretty much reserves. I mean, they're not, you know, actively helping me, that's for sure. How about on the pitching side? Any common threads there? 
Well, one common thread, Corey Knable, which I am not happy about, obviously, because he was not very good. Um, but uh, other than that, no, I mean, it's been kind of mixed all around, mainly because each of the five leagues are completely different. I mean, on the one hand, I'll be in an NFBC kind of main event type league, which is TGFBI, which I think you're in. Yep. Um, and I'm in a, some weird... Um, other um, NFBC league where it's just draft and hold like 50 players. So completely different strategy. I'm in an NL league at, at labor, you know, they're all just so different that it's, that you get a different mix of players just because of, because it's a mix of leagues. Yeah, exactly. Well, you mentioned tout wars, which is your successful team. I'm in that league as well. And you are really having a successful year You're in first place with a, a nine point edge over the second place team, Jeff Erickson. And then farther back for the other guys, I think six points further to Mike Podhorzer and so on down the line. And it was an interesting thing to watch this year because of the fairly extreme strategy you adopted this year at the draft. You didn't draft a single starting pitcher and you had a 77-23 hit pitch split. Before we talk about how it worked and why it worked, what prompted you to take that approach in the first place? The fact that there are three other baseball HQ owners in the league. I mean, the last three years, it's been a bloodbath fighting over exactly the same players with you and with Bloomfield. And we added blessing this year. I mean, it's just too much. So yeah, I did some, I wanted to get some strategy where I wasn't fighting with you guys. The strategy guarantees you two combined points in wins and strikeouts. You can't get more than that because you have no starters. And a winning point total in this league, what, 95 to 105, somewhere in that region. So you get two out of those two categories. You need 93 or so minimum in the other eight, which means you have to win almost all of them to win the league. And when you formulated the strategy, were you aiming to win all the other categories or were you counting on the other points in the league to be evenly distributed so that you could win with a mid-90s total? I was aiming to do as well in the other categories as I could. Um, but I've always kind of looked at this as 90 is the, is the target. So not 95 to 105. I mean, every, every year, some team does some kind of stars and scrubs and everything works for them. They don't have any injuries. They can hit a hundred points, but, um, you know, typically speaking, um, nineties, nineties, pretty darn close to winning this league. And so that's what I kind of, and I looked at it going back, you know, five, six years. So. It wouldn't have won every year 90, but it would have won some years, and that's kind of what I was aiming at. I was thinking about trading in this league. I actually emailed you a month or so ago and uh, offered uh, the concept of a trade to see if you were interested, and you were, but it turned out that your strategy doesn't leave you a lot of room for category-type trading because you have no place to gain. You're too far back in wins and a mile back in strikeouts, and you're winning four of the five offensive categories by pretty comfortable margins, and you're second in the other in stolen bases, and you're a mile ahead of the third-place guy, so you're kind of locked across the board. You have some large surpluses in the offensive categories and in saves, so you maybe could trade those surpluses basically for nothing so that the team that gets those guys could catch up to your overall competitors and pass them in individual categories. So at this stage in the season, what are you thinking about with regard to trading? I'm not really thinking about trading. I mean, if you want to give me some stolen bases, that'd be great. Since you're the person who's ahead of me in stolen bases, I could get a point. Um, but typically speaking, I'm just holding on for dear life, praying for no injuries, 
you know, I think if I had to, uh, I think the same with fab, I have a lot of fab money left. I'm just really bracing myself for injuries or unforeseen events that I need to cover. And if those things happen, then I'll try to do whatever I have to do to cover them. But um, that's it. I mean, I just need my hitting to keep hitting and I need my pitching to keep their ratios low. Um, that's pretty much it. And I um, hope that Erickson doesn't catch me or pod hoser, hoser or whoever else is out there trying to catch me. I'm, I'm just hanging on for dear life at this point. I think uh, when I looked at the stats the other day, I think Jeff is in more danger of being caught in some of the categories than he is of catching anybody and moving up. And he's kind of locked in a lot of categories. But when you look at the standings now in the overall sense, you're, you're at 95 and you have a lead of nine points over Jeff Erickson. How likely do you think you are at this point to keep the lead and win the league? Um, I feel good about my team keeping where it is as long as things like Aaron Judge doesn't suddenly get hurt or um, Jose Ramirez, some of these really top hitters. Um, you know, I feel pretty good about the saves category. I, I if, if a pitcher starts blowing up, um, I can always put him on the bench. I don't, I don't really see a lot of downside to my point total. I worry more about those some team getting hot and picking up a bunch of numbers. I've seen it happen before, and there's plenty of season left. So um, that's, that's the more likely scenario. How much of the strategy depended on you being the only manager doing it? Oh, completely. I mean – relievers who have good ratios would have that are non-closers would have been way more expensive if not if not the case and you know i got guys like uh, clay holmes for nothing um you know and so that that was a critical part of it i can still get guys like that in fact um you know if you if you're looking for a guy who has low ratios there's they're out there on the on the waiver wire so it's uh, it helps our friend Steve Moyer believed that a similar strategy could work even in a league that did have innings minimums. Our league doesn't have innings minimums, so you're, I think you're at around 275 innings and some of them are over 1,200. How much do you agree with Steve's idea that you could do this in a 1,000-inning minimum league? Yeah, I don't see how. I mean, I, don't, I think you'd have to have some starters, and that really defeats, unless you get really excellent ones, it really defeats the goal of um, winning – saves and the ratio categories. So, um, I'm not sure how, I, I'm not sure how he would have formulated that, but I think he would have had to have had some starters to hit those, those innings minimums. Well, he did try the approach in the, in the league before. And I remember him winning all the hitting categories and struggling in the pitching categories. Did you ever ask him like, how do you, how did you propose to, to win getting, you know, mid value category scores at best in the in the pitching ratios well i think he intended to trade like i mean if he had a nice hitting um surplus hitters are hard to come by because of the scarcity um although i think that that's been much reduced in recent years because you have a lot more platoons and you have a lot more willingness by teams to cut guys and bring up minor leaguers than in the past but um those things aside i'm sure that he was thinking if i have a hitting surplus and i get a nice lead in those categories, I can trade for pitching. Let's talk about the strategy in a little more detail. You went a little stars and scrubs on offense. 
you had a $43 player, Jose Ramirez, who I think was the consensus number one hitter in the American League. You had a couple of low guys in the 30s, uh, Judge and Springer, twos, low 20s, mid-20s, Marcus Semien and Michael Conforto, who you took a kind of a stab at thinking he'd get signed somewhere. And then a couple of low teen guys, uh, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa and Kevin Biggio. And then $25 on your last seven guys, uh, Rutschman, Miguel Cabrera, Urshela, Trevor Larnock, Josh Lowe, Jeremy Pena, and Kevin Ploiecki. How much of the salary structure was designed into this strategy, and how much of it was just you playing the table and taking what you could get? Um, On the pitching side, I was intending to spend even less than I spent, um, but I needed to get at least enough saves, you know, to get me going. Um, But I really intended to spend very little on pitching and spend a lot on hitting. And so I felt comfortable early in the draft spending on Jose Ramirez and um, Springer, I think was my second highest, you know, and so on um, with the idea that I would have money late as well, because I didn't spend it on the pitching. So um, that was part of the design, but stars and scrubs on, on hitting was really not part of the design. As far as I was concerned, I was using the incremental money from pitching to help me buy a few nice anchor hitters while, um, hopefully holding up the back end. And it just didn't work out that way because I needed money, you know, to get, of all people, Matt Barnes and Scott Barlow and some of these guys like that, who I thought would give me saves. You've profited $19 so far on Aaron Judge, but your other three top price pitters are minus 17, so you kind of broke even. And interestingly, the closest to breaking even is Semyon, who started off so poorly. Plus, you lost 19 more on the Conforto gamble when he didn't sign anywhere. So other than Judge, all your batting profit has come from uh, six of your eight hitters who are $11 and under, especially Jeremy Pena. How closely did this profit model, where you break even at the top and make your profit further down the line, align with your strategic expectations? Oh, not at all. I mean, it's uh, it's worked out so much better than I had hoped. I certainly did not plan on getting Jeremy Pena. That's not somebody that I was aiming for or thinking, oh, I, I have to have Jeremy Pena because he's going to be good. I was just very lucky on my part. I had hoped to spend more money um, on these on these hitters in that bottom range and having the, you know, these bigger bats carry me, um, not even looking necessarily for profit, but just by bullying the amount of money I was spending on it. Um, but it's worked out pretty well. I've gotten lucky in three or four instances, and that's really given me, you know, the surplus I needed. You got Taylor Ward really cheaply, I think, in the very first week in fab. That has to have been instrumental. Uh, was that, again, by design? Did, was he one of those players that you came out of the draft thinking, hey, nobody got this guy, I'm going to grab him up? Or was it just a, a news situation? Hey, this guy's playing, I, I'll put in a bid. Well, if Michael Conforto didn't just skip the year, I probably wouldn't have Taylor Ward. But since he did, Taylor Ward's filled in. And, you know, he's been not so great the last 30 days or so. But, I mean, he's been so good the first half. Um, He's basically been Michael Conforto for me. So, again, I've just completely lucked into it in the sense that I thought Conforto would finally find a team at some point. And by then, Ward might cool down. Instead, Ward's just been pretty good this year, and it's worked out. It seems to me that we have an expectation in the fantasy business that we're all going to lose money on our $30 players, $30, $35, $40 players. The higher the salary goes, after all, the more likely it is that you're not going to get any profit out of it. And 
it might get us to reimagine our strategies toward acquiring more players down the salary scale, but if that was the case, then supply and demand for those players would raise their salaries and make them less profitable. What do you think is the future of auction pricing for hitters? Well, I always want to do the opposite of what most people are doing. I think that's where the profit is. Um, but um, it's very different. Like, um, uh, So I'm in labor NL, and I have to say, if you're getting kind of batters around $25 down to maybe $17, you're, that's a nice sweet spot in that league. That's a, that's a terrible spot in Tout Wars AL. I mean, there's those guys don't go for – they all go for a premium in that range. So – Every league's a little bit different how they handle it. I, it's really worked for me having Aaron Judge this year, but I would never have dreamed it. And, you know, he's really the third batter I got um, by price. He, I paid 31 for him. I just lucked into the fact that he's been insane this year and hasn't been hurt both. Um, but I don't think it's a reasonable expectation that that would happen. So I don't, I don't have a good answer other than to say if everybody's doing the same thing and you do something different – it probably is going to help you to do something different. Your strategy also depended on your relievers. You needed a high score in saves, but at the start of the year, the uncertainty about closer situations really pushed prices above $20 for all of the established closers, guys like Hendricks and Iglesias Romano and Ryan Presley. You zagged into that by leaning into the uncertainty on three teams. You drafted two guys each in Boston for a combined $18, uh, two guys on the Yankees for a combined seven dollars, and boy, that worked out well. And in Seattle, you got two guys for a combined sixteen dollars. And out of all of that, you got an awful lot of saves. Was that again? Was that approach planned because you liked the two reliever setup on those particular teams, or was it? I'll take what the table offers. Um, it was planned, and in this particular case, the advantage I have is I had nine slots to put relievers in, so. You know, most teams are, will allocate one or two at the most, you know, to relievers. So if you're doing that, you better make sure they count. You know, you can't really mess around. Uh, for me, I had nine slots I could get a reliever at. So like take Seattle, for instance, you know, that nobody knew who's going to close for them or even if they would have one closer. But it's fine for me if I can, you know, do if I can, you know, handcuff a couple guys together in an auction and get their saves. So that's kind of how I approach that. Yeah, the two guys you got in Seattle really helped. Uh, the strategy worked. Uh, your top three drafted relievers were Clay Holmes, Scott Barlow, and Paul Seawald, and they have 48 saves combined, and then you have a few here and there elsewhere to bring your total to a league leading. You're over 60 now, and you're fairly comfortable ahead of the player in second place. You executed this reliever part of your strategy in an auction draft. Do you think it's transferable to a snake draft? I think it's much harder in a snake draft. And the reason is, is you don't really know when your competitors might snatch somebody away from you. So you probably are going to be carefully overspend on those later relievers that you really don't want to overspend on. Whereas in an auction, you can, you know, you can make those choices um, at the moment um, in control of what you're deciding to do. So no, I don't think it works well for me, at least in a, in a, in a snake draft, because I would almost certainly overpay. Your top three guys, as I mentioned, Clay Holmes, Scott Barlow, and Paul Sewald. And if you add in Diego Castillo, the other side of the Seattle part, and Garrett Whitlock from Boston, 
those five guys combined for a 274 ERA and a one whip. And your team for the year is third in ERA at 346 and second in whip at 116. You also have churned through another 21 other relievers who have combined for a 440 ERA and a 136 and just four saves. Did you manage the churn of relievers during the season or was that just the way it went? Um, yes. I mean, I'm just hunting for skills relentlessly. And if a guy is not giving, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, if you're not giving me what I need, you're out and I'll get another guy. Like I said, there's plenty of guys still on the waiver wire. And sometimes I'm looking for a week against, uh, you know, the, the, I hate to say it, the Detroit Tigers. You know, if you find a week where a guy, the team's playing Detroit a lot, then that's a good week for that guy probably. So, I look at the schedule that way and feel like um, because no one else is looking at these guys that are non-closers, I can just get them and throw them away willy-nilly without much worry. That doesn't even cost you anything. If you were planning to try this strategy again next season, and I suppose because you win, the, the league organizers are going to look at the innings minimum afresh and maybe change it back because it's a fairly unrealistic representation of a winning baseball team in real life to have nothing but relievers, although Tampa sometimes seems to be willing to give it more than a try. But they, you know, the league organizers, I think, might want you to have to have starters. And the way to do that is either to say you have to have starters or to have an innings minimum, probably the latter. But if they don't do that and you're planning to try this strategy again next season, what might you do differently? I would want to have the same amount of luck that I had this year is what I would want. And I wouldn't, so I wouldn't touch anything and pray for that, but I don't know how to do that. I mean, I don't think this is a, I don't think this is a strategy that wins over and over and over. I think it, that the forces combine to, that I find myself in first place, but um, you know, if I do win this year, I'm going to, I'm going to have to give whatever. Uh, I don't think you get a trophy. I'm not sure if you get like a, like a, a beer or something, but um, I'm probably gonna have to give it to Mike Gianella because he's the first guy to try this, and we've talked about it a lot. And um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think this is a viable strategy year after year that just wins. Just uh, before we leave this, how are you doing in XFL? Um, my team in XFL, I think it today is in second to last. I um, I actually punted this entire season. And traded anything of value away to to rebuild with uh, prospects, except for maybe like seven core guys that I think are good for the next five or six years based on their low salaries. So it's kind of a reload year for me in that league. But um, man, it, I, I had a, a few good years and it was very short lived, three years, and now here we are uh, doing it again with a rebuild. It's 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 relentless that league. I was going to say the way that the league is structured, it almost forces you to go into that boom and bust cycle. And if you last for three years at the top of it, you're actually doing pretty well because the the usual length of time at the top of the league is a little shorter. Yeah. I mean, if you're not doing, I, I mean, there's guys in our league who just refuse to, um, to see it that way. And they, I don't think they're ever going to win. I mean, you kind of have to, you have to force yourself to have, enough guys peak at a low salary all at the same time and not have injuries. And it's very, very difficult to do that if you're not trying to do that. So, um, yeah, I don't really, I've never really cracked the code on uh, like Don Drucker is probably going to win again this year. And he won last year. It's just nuts how, how he's able to do what he does. But, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all hats off to him. I think he's won the league the most times, and we have guys in that league who's never won and maybe never will. So, and you know, it's all industry guys. It's not any many. There's no cupcakes in this league. It's just interesting um, how people approach dynasty. It's it's just a different kind of league. Does he not do boom and bust and succeed despite not doing boom and bust, or is he just really good at doing boom and bust? Um, Don Drucker never, um, he's never rebuilding. I mean, I'm not sure how he does it. Uh, honestly, uh, he doesn't do a lot of training either. He just, uh, he, he always has an excellent core of hitting and, and he makes sure that he has an excellent core of hitting and just keeps, um, year after year adding guys to that. Um, and then pitching, um, kind of goes how it goes. So if he's, if he does okay on pitching, he, he's, he's up there and fighting it out for a win. And if not, then he just kind of lets it go how it goes and doesn't really do a lot uh, to give himself good picks for next year and just kind of waits it out. But he's been very successful doing just just by hoarding hitters mainly. And the idea in the league is it's a dynasty league, but you do have a salary a salary component in that uh, the guys you pick up at the auction after all the keepers are taken into consideration, their salaries go up. If I'm not mistaken, five dollars per year that you keep them, but your, but the guys you draft as farm players, they only go up by three, so it, they're doubly valuable in that sense that they start low and they stay low for a fairly long time, kind of like real baseball in that respect. Yeah, I am. Um, so I am very extremely always trying to do it by getting not just prospects, but you know. Ronald Acuna type prospects, where if you have that guy at one plus three, that guy's probably going to, he's probably going to be um, on my team as long as he's playing baseball. Um, you know, and so if you can get seven or eight guys like that, you know, you can win. Um, but it takes forever to get those guys because they're, you know, they're, there's a lot of guys who everybody's like, oh, the next best thing. And then they're just pretty good. Just pretty good is everybody has guys who are just pretty good. Um, so that's a long, it takes a long time to build that. I, Drucker doesn't do that at all. He doesn't care about, I mean, he cares about the plus threes, but it isn't something he aims at. He just tries to get great hitters and that carries, um, you know, half the team. And then he just cobbles together enough pitching to win sometimes and, you know, always kind of be in the hunt. So there's, there's different ways of doing this. Um, but I'm, I'm a, I've become a person who cares a lot about prospects and it's only because of this league. When you talk about a guy like Ronald Acuna, I, I guess he was fairly obviously going to be really good when he was a prospect, but there are a lot of prospects who look like they're going to be really good and then turn out not to be really good. And sometimes they flame out entirely. And how do you assess the prospects that you're looking at, whether you're trying to acquire them in trade, or I guess it's a little easier when you're doing them in trade, because you might have a bit of minor league track record to look at rather than them being in low A or something like that, which is just a crapshoot. How do you how do you assess the prospects that you're targeting, either for your minor league draft itself or for trade acquisitions when you're doing dump trades? Well, guys like Acuna or Juan uh, Soto or Wander Franca, or I could name a few, um, they're all guys that you have to get either in low A or even before that. Um, because somebody's going to get them. And if you don't get them, then you'll never get them. Because once they're doing well in double A, triple A, they're, you can't, you just can't even trade for them. So um, I often will get a bunch of guys at low level who have incredibly high upside potential, 
um, of which only a small percentage actually reach that potential. And then when that happens, then those other guys either are useless if they aren't making it at all, or, you know, they're pretty good and I can trade them for something. But typically who I'm trading um, is I'm trading established players. Like this year, I traded Garrett Cole and Aaron Nola um, for high picks, you know, that I can use next year trying to find the next uh, Ronald Acuna. Um, for, for example, this past year when we were in Arizona, um, I ran into Jason Gray, who had just watched um, Ellie De La Cruz, who happens to be an infielder for the Reds. Um, and he he's told me, you've got to get this guy because he's one of those guys who has that kind of upside. I didn't need to hear more. Um, and I was able to get De La Cruz, you know, but he at the time, nobody had even seen him or heard, barely heard of him. But I got him in the third round and now he's in double A and seems to be doing OK. Um, but those, you know, will he make it? We'll see. I mean, we probably won't know for another year or two, but those are the kind of guys that I'm looking for. Guys who can steal 30 bases, hit 30 home runs, and play shortstop is is the gold standard as far as I'm concerned. When you mention the Reds and playing shortstop and prospects, after this most recent uh, trading deadline frenzy, uh, he has a lot of company at shortstop in the Cincinnati organization all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, this is something Steve Morey did always talk about, is that um, shortstops can play anywhere. You can play shortstop. You can play left field, center field, right field, third, second. You know, you're you're pretty much set with, with you know as long as you can hit. So um, I think that's how the Reds are thinking. I think the Reds think it doesn't matter that they started out as shortstop. Eventually, they're they're going to be wherever they're going to be based on uh, how they hit. So. You know, they're, as long as they are good athletes, and most of these guys are. I mean, I think um, I think that 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 Taylor Cruz is like a ridiculous toolsy athlete, but is probably very unlikely to play uh, shortstop um, because he's really tall. It's just kind of interesting um, the approach. But I think that's the approach: is that if you get a bunch of shortstops, some of them play third or left field. You know, it seems like a pretty smart strategy for if you have nothing else to go on Focus in on your fantasy minor league management to just grab up as many shortstop as you can because, as you said, um, if you're and, a, you know, if I'm getting a, a defensive, defensive uh, I feel like on the a defensive, defensive flop, spectrum, they're going to be playable left field. As as hit, you know, there's so, not a lot of places they can shove you except DH at that league, point. So, um, sometimes they don't want to use you for DH and you just run out of you know, if you find a 30 30 shortstop, you know, in double A you probably have missed your chance to get them. So you have to kind of get them a lot earlier and then hope they pan out. And if they don't pan out, you know, you let them go and get another one. I mean, that's that's kind of the nature of it. But, you know, I've my list of guys that I have that are kind of superstar core offensive players, um, you know, I have Tatis, I have Acuna. I mean, I, you, the reason I have those guys is because they panned out. But there's a for each one of those guys, there's probably four or five who didn't pan out or are playing Major League Baseball at an excellent, you know, they're good. They're just not going to give me the crazy numbers every year. So that's the that's the trade-off is those kind of decisions. How many guys are you allowed to keep in your minor league system in that XFL league? You can keep a total of 15 players, whether active or minor league. So um, what a lot of people do is they keep, 15 major leaguers and no minor leaguers. And then other people will keep like one or two major leaguers and 13 minor leaguers. And then you got everything in between. 
I imagine that depends a lot on where you think you are in the boom and bust cycle as well. Well, Doug, this has been interesting so far. I appreciate you talking about the strategy and uh, let's take a break and then we'll talk about the trading fallout and the bullpens. All right. Doug Dennis is a bullpens columnist at BaseballHQ.com and he'll be back again a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I'd like to tell you about an item of great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the lineup outlook column, analyst Greg Jewett looks at MJ Melendez and Tommy Pham as leadoff hitters. The lineup outlook is just one of the great resources available all the time when you're a member of the team at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report. And leading off, it's our National League news and our old friend, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Well, we'll start in Atlanta. They made uh, quite a few little moves here and there. They've started by putting ace left-hander Max Freed on the seven-day concussion IL on Thursday. What's the latest on that? It was a weird play. Freed hit his head on the field during a game in Saturday City Field on Saturday night. Atlanta was trying to turn a 3-6-1 double play, but the throw from shortstop Dansby Swanson hit Freed in the chest and then bounced into foul ground. He chased after it. Tried to throw out the runner at home, but slipped and fell awkwardly and hard onto his head and pitching shoulder. He actually stayed in the game, pitched three more innings, but he was having ongoing symptoms of a concussion, and Atlanta's playing uh, better safe than sorry with the playoffs coming up. Uh, Atlanta recalled right in a pitcher Jay Jackson to take Freed's roster spot, but for now the probable pitchers list shows a TBD in Freed's place for a muddy start at home against the Mets. Couldn't happen at a worse time, I guess, for Atlanta. But they made the move retroactive to Monday, so he could be back as soon as uh, right after this weekend. But again, as you said, the uh, probable pitchers list for Monday's game says TBD, so I guess we'll have to wait and see what's going on there. Um, Atlanta also placed infielder Orlando Arcia on the IL. He has a hamstring strain. Phil Hertz covered this one for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Who gets Orlando Arcia's playing time? Well, for the second time this season, Atlanta's calling up one of their top prospects straight from double A, and that's Vaughn Grissom. Uh, Grissom actually started the season in high A, but has been dominating double A to the tune of a 363 average, 925 OPS. While Grissom has been primarily a shortstop in the minors, expectation is that he'll be Atlanta's everyday second baseman uh, until uh, Albies returns next month. We've given Grissom 40% of the playing time at second for the remainder of 2022 along with 5% of the playing time at short. And most of the playing time comes from Arcio, who has a hamstring strain. It's not clear how long he'll be out, but when he returns, it will likely be as a utility player. Grissom's playing prime projection is subject to change depending on his performance and also on Albie's health. Yeah, it looks like it'll be a little bit of musical chairs there, but Orlando Arcia certainly looks like the odd man out, especially if Grissom hits. Uh, Atlanta also activated relief pitcher Kirby Yates from the 60-day IL, and they sent Huasker Inoa. They just called him up a few days ago. They sent him back to the minors. What's going on here? Yates was one of the best closers in baseball in 2019, but has missed most of the last two seasons with first elbow chips and then Tommy John surgery. We've given him 3% of Atlanta's innings over the remainder of the season, but we'll be monitoring his usage. 
Uh, Inoa had just been called up a couple of days ago, was not used by Atlanta. He may return later this season, but it's not likely he'll help fantasy teams. Let's move on. Uh, Philadelphia pulled outfielder Kyle Schwarber from Thursday's game against the Marlins. Uh, he's having a terrific season on the power side. What's the skinny? It looked like Schwarber had a calf strain. His status is in doubt for this weekend's series against the Mets, but Schwarber himself said he's doubtful because the calf got worse and worse as the Thursday game went on. If he's out any length of time, it's bad news for the Phillies and for Schwarber's fantasy managers. He's leading the National League at homers with 34, although hitting just 211. And, of course, Nick, this raises the question of playing time with Schwarber out. Who gets the uh, extra reps in, in the outfield? We really don't know yet how that's going to shake out. Uh, Matt Veerling is a fourth outfielder, so it looks like he may initially benefit uh, with, with extra playing time. Uh, of course, Bryce Harper will be back eventually, and so depending on how long Schwarber's out, uh, that could play into that whole situation. But it's, it's hard to tell at the, at the moment. And, of course, if Harper does come back, he's had arm trouble and he was DHing before he went on the DL. We have to assume that when he comes back, if he's 100%, he immediately goes back into the outfield. But there remains a possibility that when he comes back, he will still have to be DHing because of that arm issue, which would mean continued outfield reps for Nick Castellanos, which is in nobody's interest. And uh, maybe uh, if Schwarber comes back, then he's in the outfield. The outfield in Philadelphia if they're forced to play Castellanos and uh, Schwarber both is uh, in pretty rough shape defensively, I think. And in Cincinnati, boy, here's a, a headline that comes uh, out of the past and the present. Mike Moustakis is back on the IL. It seems like he's always on the IL these days. Tom Kephart for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What happens in the Cincinnati infield with Moustakis back on the shelf? The absence of Moustakas means more DH time for infielder Donovan Solano and less DH time for Joey Votto. Uh, high contact line drive hitter Solano was likely the playing time gainer. Uh, Votto and Moustakas have recently been splitting time at both first base and DH versus right-handed pitching. Moustakas typically sits against left-handers, while Votto is a virtual everyday player. Uh, infielder Alejo Lopez was promoted from AAA as the corresponding roster move, uh, likely to play sparingly in a reserve role. In Chicago, boy, what a terrible season for the Cubs. And they're maybe trying to do a little bit of rebuilding of sorts or trying to figure something out, maybe for their DH spot. They picked up Fran Mil Reyes, who was waived by Cleveland not long ago. Tom Kephart covers the uh, Cubs for playing time today as well. What does Tom say is likely to be Fran Mil Reyes's role in that uh, fairly dismal Cubs situation? Well, Reyes is a low batting average power source who accumulates both strikeouts and home runs in bunches, although he's really struggled to find his power stroke in 2022, but the strikeouts have certainly been there. He was Chicago's uh, starting DH in his August 9th debut, uh, so it appears that he'll see considerable playing time. We have him at 50% playing time currently, though that could rise. Chicago's been splitting DH at bats among numerous position players before Reyes' arrival, so there'll be no large playing time reductions. In Colorado, there's no timetable for outfielder Chris Bryant to return from the IL, it seems, and they've called up a guy, uh, third baseman Elahuris Montero, and he started the team's last seven games. Alan Davison covers the Rockies for playing time today. What do we know about and what should we be thinking about Elahuris Montero? Well, now a week into Bryant's IL stint, there's still no timetable for his return from a diagnosis of a left foot bone bruise along with plantar fasciitis. Uh, Manager Bud Black has mentioned that rest is the best therapy. That's not exactly great news for those hoping for a second-half boost from Bryant. 
In an under-the-radar move for the team's August 2nd doubleheader, Montero was called up and has since made seven starts across the position of DH, third base, and first base. Montero is the Rockies' third best prospect coming into 2022, looks to have been given a chance to prove he belongs in the team's long-term plans. His 400 BA since being called up is being propped up with a 53% hit rate, but his power is for real, a 163 expected power index. A worthy of a look for the rest of the season. We've reduced playing time for Bryant, down 20%. For Connor Joe, down 15%. For Ryan McMahon, down 10%. We've given much of that playing time to Montero, up 35%, and sprinkled in a bit more time, 5% in the outfield for Jonathan Daza and Randall Gritchick. Speaking of uh, the outfield, when the Cardinals traded their mainstay outfielder, Harrison Bader, and he's on the IL, understand, to the Yankees, it certainly raised a question in the short term of how the playing time vacuum would be filled. And Zach Larson, in playing time today for BaseballHQ.com, says they're filling the void with Lars Newtbar. Newtbar, up 20%, 12 consecutive starts, is looking like the answer. He's been hot at the plate over the past month, 55 at-bats. 284 expected batting average, 129 expected power index. Brings the same energy in the dugout that Bader had as well. Corey Dickerson down 10%. Brendan Donovan down 10% are the playing time losers. Uh, Juan Yepes begins a rehab assignment on Tuesday. He poses another threat to Newt Barr's current everyday role. So we'll see how he impacts the lineup when he returns to Major League action. And finally, Nick, they've had one piece of bad news after another in the Dodger rotation. But finally, maybe a little bit of good luck is coming their way. Uh, the fifth rehab start coming off Tommy John's surgery, Dustin May stretched out to 68 pitches while tossing five innings of one-run ball against AAA Round Rock. Uh, May was dominant in this contest, eight strikeouts, one walk. Uh, his effort here in overall rehab numbers, three runs allowed, 26 strikeouts, five walks over 16 innings, suggests the return to L.A. is in short order. Accordingly, we've uh, nudged his innings pitch up slightly for now at the expense of still-injured Clayton Kershaw and Walker Bueller. LA's current front four appear to be on cruise control right now, but rookie Ryan Pepio still making spot starts, and May, Kershaw, and Bueller all expected back from the IL sometime before season end. Our projections here should be written in pencil, but it looks like a strong rotation, whoever's in it. All right, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out this week, and we'll be back with you in seven days' time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ co-general manager and writer, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the pod. Glad to be here, PD. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you too. And some happy news, but mostly not as usual here at Baseball HQ Radio's Market Watch news segments. The Mariners made some news this week. The biggest news being activated outfielder Mitch Hanniger from the IL early in the week and super rookie Julio Rodriguez for games today. Uh, Alan Davison covers the Seattle Mariners for playing time today. Hanniger got right back into the swing of things. Yeah, Hanniger stepped right back into the three-hole in the lineup. Uh, we expect him to split his time between the outfield and DH, maybe at least for a little bit while he uh, you know, comes back to full health here. But you know, resumed his spot right in the middle of the lineup. Uh, so a bunch of right field, a bunch of uh, three-hole for him with uh, periodic vacations at the DH spot. Yeah, but he'll still be in the middle of the order. That outfielder all of a sudden looks pretty set, doesn't it? Uh, you got Jesse Winker in left, J-Rod in center, Hanniger in right, and they activated super utility guy Dylan Moore, who had had some reps in the outfield as well. What's the playing time fallout here? 
Yeah, there were a lot of shuffling on the roster here this week. There, I don't know if they get frequent flyer miles between Seattle and Tacoma, but they're, uh, you know, they're they're certainly, uh, you know. Sending a lot of people up and down. So with uh, with these activations, they sent Kyle Lewis back down as well as Abraham Toro. Uh, so that's where most of the playing time evaporated to allow uh, us to allocate some to the likes of uh, Dylan Moore. None of this really a surprise. You know, Toro's really struggled this season, uh, hitting a buck eighty and you know a fair amount of playing time, two hundred sixty at bats. So uh, that that's a warranted demotion. Uh, Kyle Lewis got a, a quick cup of coffee after coming back from injury. Uh, and he looked, shall we say, not ready. I think he went four for 40 with uh, 18 strikeouts. So he goes back to AAA and looks to find his swing, basically. Uh, and that that leaves more, as you say, more of a super sub with the outfield a little more stabilized. He offers some utility that Lewis doesn't. He can play infield and outfield. Uh, he also doesn't hit much, but you know he runs a little. Uh, he has five home runs and 11 stolen bases in 147 at bats. So there, there are some counting stats to be had there, you know, and so this gets them to a more versatile bench with more Sam Haggerty, Jake Lamb for the moment, Jared Kellenick's there. Uh, I, I can't say I have a good read as to whether he's going to stick around in sort of a fourth outfielder role, or if he's going to follow Kyle Lewis back down the triple a, uh, but you know, expect a lot of mixing and matching here among these bench guys, getting them at bats, uh, you know, Lamb in the corners, uh, him and Moore make a decent platoon advantage if they need to. Haggerty's a switch hitter, so he offers a fair amount of utility as well. This is, you know, the the useful, mature bench of a contender at this point. It does look that way. A lot of teams now copying Tampa, as a lot of teams do, because they do things very well. And one of Tampa's hallmarks over the last couple of years has been to have a lot of guys who can play a lot of positions and who can hit from both sides or hit well enough against left-handers and right-handers to make them non-burdens uh, when they're not playing. So uh, I think that the Mariners are tracking in the same direction as Tampa. And uh, of course, Tampa has been very successful with this. No World Series yet, but they make the playoffs on skimpy salaries. And that's got to be interesting to a lot of teams. The Mariners also activated right-hander Diego Castillo from the uh, IL. This is good news for Doug Dennis, who has Diego Castillo on his roster, but he'll be coming back. What do we expect from Castillo and what has turned out to be a really solid Mariners bullpen? Yeah, it's a very good bullpen, and he's a pretty big part of it. You know, not carrying the closer label, but you know, getting a lot of high leverage work. Uh, you know, he was only out for the minimum fifteen days, uh, so it's, he, I believe, he came back without a rehab assignment, and you know, jumped right back into the, his usual role uh, with handling a one-run game in the eighth inning the other night to pick up a hold. Um, you know, he hasn't been fantastic. Uh, you know, his ERA is a tick under four with a a 130 whip last year. He was better at a tick under three, a 298 ERA with a whip, a tick over one. Uh, but you know, the, that was some of that was that he was uh, had a couple of bad outings leading up to that IL stint for, as I recall, a, a short sore shoulder. So he's been, uh, you know, before uh, he was pitching in pain, he was pitching very well. Uh, so I would expect that if they have in fact gotten rid of the shoulder inform inflammation that we'll, we will see the better version of him down the stretch. 
Yeah, and he has the faith of manager Scott Service, so I expect he'll be, as you said, in a high leverage situation. He'll pick up a save here and there and a good amount of holds if that counts in your league, so keep that in mind. Speaking of the Mariners' bullpen, they moved right-handed starter Chris Flexen into the bullpen, and as a Flexen fantasy manager, I can see why. Last eight starts, six of them were PQS disasters, like zero or one PQS scores, including two starts versus the Angels, and that shouldn't be where you go to get... PQS disasters added to your uh, add to your record. What do you think Chris Flexen's role will be? And as I said, it's a solid bullpen, and it just got a little more solid with the return of Diego Castillo. What's Chris Flexen going to do back there? Yeah, I would imagine he's going to soak up low leverage innings. Uh, you know, working a long relief role, bail out a starter. You know, once a week when needed, and hopefully, uh, as you say, find his better stuff in the process of that because he certainly has not looked good lately. I think what they're aiming to do here is to try to get him straightened out a little bit and then hopefully be able to give him some spot starts in September because they do have guys like George Kirby and Logan Gilbert who are going to, you know, pick going to stick in the rotation now uh, as they go back to a five man rotation. But those guys are probably running into innings limits as we get into September and getting ready for October. So I'm sure if the playoff race allows them to, uh, the Mariners would like to skip a turn or two from Gilbert and Kirby somewhere down the road and get Flexen back in the rotation. But as you say, if Flexen is going to get that opportunity, the first thing he has to do is stop getting bombed by the Angels, for instance. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Kirby in particular, I think, is going to be on some kind of innings limit, some kind of pitch limit. I think maybe they'll give a little bit a longer leash to Logan Gilbert, but uh, they'll definitely not be wanting to pile up his innings because as we say pretty much every week here, if a team has a chance at making the playoffs, and a lot of them do, Seattle's not that far out of a playoff spot. They may even be in one. It's uh, hard to keep track unless you check every morning. So all of these teams need to keep winning. They need to keep putting their best guys out there. But that kind of runs up against the strategic wish of keeping your pitchers especially fresh for what you hope is a fairly long run after the regular season. And if you have any innings control over these young guys, especially it becomes a pretty difficult circle to square. Yeah, that's right. And I just pulled it up. Uh, They are in fact in a playoff position right now. Uh, They're a game and a half clear uh, of the, uh, the cut line for the wild card. So that to your point, doesn't give them a lot of flexibility. They're a game and a half up, but that's enough that they're going to have to keep their, their foot to the pedal, you know, well into the last days of the season, uh, you know, which are still, you know, five plus weeks away, unless they uh, get get some more separation from you know the the Orioles and Twins and those those kind of people. So yeah, there's a balance to strike here, and you know they would like you know getting back to flex, and they would love to have some more confidence in him that they can ask him for uh, for f- to take a game or two here or there and stretch out their rotation. But you know, right now the performance just doesn't justify it, and the priority is, of course, to maintain that playoff position. So they, they were sort of forced into this move, I think. I'm doing this a little bit from memory, but when I looked at his PQS chart, it looked like his last two decent starts, he had a PQS dominant four and they were both against good teams. I think one of them was Houston. He, he pitched well against Houston maybe. And another one, uh, I can't remember who the four was against, but it was not, uh, it was not the angels and it wasn't, you know, Texas or Detroit either. 
No, you're right. He had a decent outing against Houston, and then uh, you know, going back to the Fourth of July it was the Padres who we hung a uh, PQS four against. So uh, you know, it might be a case where you know there's a little fatigue, or there's a mechanical issue, or there's a there's a nagging injury, any of those things that they could get get straightened out because he was you know more serviceable. Uh, you know, his ERA of you know 4.0 for the first half wasn't great, but it was sort of in line with what we saw last year and his. Um, you know, his last 31 days have been quite a bit worse than that. Um, you know, he's, been, as you say, he's been getting knocked around recently, uh, an expected ERA of the last 31 days of uh, 580, which is uh, just speaking to how poorly he was pitching. And for a little while, he was getting away with it. But then the uh, the house of cards started to come apart. That's right. Uh, Kansas City recalled outfielder Brent Rooker from AAA, sent down their catcher Sebastian Rivero to AA. Uh, Rooker was once a really highly regarded Minnesota prospect. I remember him, but he didn't pan out. He had decent power, but always struggled with a low batting average. He's played a couple of games with Kansas City this year and now finds himself... Oh, that's wrong. Shit. He played a couple of games in San Diego, I believe, this year, and now finds himself in Kansas City, which kind of feels like the last stop on the railroad. And if you don't manage to find yourself something to do there, you're in trouble. Uh, Ryan Williams covered the story for playing time today. What is Brent Rooker's role with the Royals as we look ahead? I think it's probably pretty modest. He's a right-handed hitter, so we're looking at him as kind of a uh, in a part-time role, as you know, maybe a short-side platoon role in an outfield in the outfield, pairing up with you know Kyle Isbell or something like that for the short term. Uh, but you know, we gave him 15% playing time at the expense of Rivero and you know Ryan O'Hearn, who I think we've seen a lot of and are not excited about. So. You know, it, this roster spot that he's taking over is not one that the Royals were relying on heavily. Like, Rivera was on the roster for nine or ten days, and I don't think he played at all because they, of course, carry Sal Perez and MJ Melendez to handle the, the bulk of the catching work. Uh, and O'Hearn, similarly, has been on the roster, but, you know, was really just taking up space. We know he's not in the long-term plans here. So, uh, you know, Rooker has been added and gives them – you know, some utility on the bench, but I don't think it's a ringing endorsement because he is taking over what was all but a dead roster spot here. Yeah. O'Hearn, uh, I think his days are numbered or started to be numbered. In fact, when Pasquantino came up uh, as somewhat of a surprise, because people were bugging the Kansas city front office to do something with him. Cause he was hitting a million in triple a, and then they got Nick Prado as well, got called up uh, in the vaccine gate uh, controversy that uh, prevented a lot of guys from Kansas city making the trip into Canada. So all of a sudden you got two reasonably decent first basemen who can really hit. And then you got O'Hearn whose OPS I think is under 600 the last time I checked and not much over if it's over at all. Yeah. He's clearly not an obstacle to Prado and Pasquantino both, you know, even if they, those guys weren't hitting, it would make sense for the Royals to just run them out there every day and let them get acclimated to the big leagues. But in fact, they are hitting pretty well. So all the more reason they're going to keep riding those two. In Texas, the Rangers sent right-hander Spencer Howard. Gosh, I remember before this season, a lot of people were interested in Spencer Howard. He goes to the 15-day IL with what they called a shoulder impingement, and they've called up left-handed reliever John King. Rod Truesdell covered the story for playing time today. So what happens with the Texas rotation, which has also lost John Gray? Yeah, there's been some attrition there. In Howard's case, I'm going to use the word attrition and not loss because 
you know, he's just been so bad. <laughs> An ERA of six with a 572 expected ERA that goes along with that, a 27 BPV. In fact, you know, and that's since those numbers are since he last came from the minors in July. And let's not forget he got sent to the minors because he was even worse before that. For the full season now, he's got, you know, eight starts, 38 innings. So he's not pitching deep into games. And the reason he's not pitching deep into games is because his ERA is 741. His whip is 173. Those numbers are, you know, as bad as you can find for anybody with 38 innings this year. So, uh, you know, things are bleak. Uh, They're going to blame some of this on their shoulder impingement. And I would imagine he will go back to the minors and get a rehab stint you know, when he's ready and try to demonstrate that he deserves, a, you know, maybe a couple more token starts in the majors to end the year. But, you know, if he doesn't look like he's doing better in the minors, once the shoulder gets straightened out, you know, we, we may have seen the last of him for this season. Any chance that Dallas Keuchel makes his uh, reappearance? I, I'm starting to think you're Dallas Keuchel's biggest fan because he comes up, uh, he comes up every time there's an opening in the Rangers rotation, which, you know, I think is the, this is the third or fourth week in the row in a row. We've projected a, a an opening in that rotation, right? Martin yep. Perez didn't get traded, but you know, John Gray got hurt and Howard got hurt and uh, you know, Glenn Otto hasn't been any good. They did call up uh, Cole Regan's last week and you know, he's got a start under his, he's got two starts under his belt now, actually. Uh, but yeah, you, at some point, Keiko is the next person up. And this is by no means to be interpreted as a recommendation that you go out and fab for Dallas Keuchel. Uh, <laughs> his uh, record so far this year and last actually kind of mitigates against anybody taking that kind of chance. Uh, Oakland made some news by putting one of their few bright spots in 2022. Right-hander Paul Blackburn goes to the 15-day IL with an inflamed middle finger and they called up left-hander J.P. Sears, who's part of the haul from the Yankee deal in the Frankie Montas trade, and they hope he's going to be a future bright spot for them. Jake Crumpler covers the A's for playing time today. Is this the passing of some kind of torch? You know, it's a fair amount of pressure on Sears, I guess, for, you know, at least as imposed by the 12 Oakland A's fans who show up for games out there. Uh, you know, they, they were a little, I think, underwhelmed by the return of that, that they got for Montas, but Sears is, you know, sort of the headliner of that, at least in terms of the piece they got that's closest to the majors, and they're going to get a look at him here. Uh, you know, he, he got a call on, uh, he got, he got that start on Wednesday versus the angels, which is a nice way to break somebody in. Uh, he went five and a third, gave up two runs on three hits, two walks and three Ks. Uh, and then that's on the heels of, you know, some small sample work for the Yankees out of the bullpen this year. It was really good. Uh, you know, a two Oh five ERA and, uh, you know, also look good in triple A. He's a, you know, sort of more of a results prospect than a, uh, a raw stuff pro- prospect. So the best news for the A's would be that they take a look at him over the next five or six weeks here, and he continues to hang up decent numbers. Yeah, 170 ERA in AAA, and that was uh, st- as a starter, I think, more than a relief. I-, I don't remember looking into it in detail, but he was a starter. I mean, that's the whole point of having him. And I presume that a lot of those innings of AAA must have been as a starter. The A's also released infielder Jed Lowry. This caught me by surprise, I have to say. And they called up Cal Stevenson, one of the guys that they got from the Rays in the Christian Bethancourt trade. What's the fallout here? Yeah, you know, Lowry's a, you know, popular piece of that team, but, you know, at age 38 or 39, clearly not part of the future and wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't hitting his age for sure. 
<laughs> for sure. So uh, the, we're, the A's go with the youth movement here. Uh, Stevenson probably doesn't get into the designated hitter mix where Lowry was spending most of his time, uh, but he'll probably move out to center field and Sky Bolt may be a playing time loser there, or maybe he moves to the corners and we get into more of a mix and match outfield there with uh, Loriano still there and Piscotti's been getting some playing time lately. Uh, as for Stevenson, there are some interesting minor league skills here. Uh, you know, his plate discipline is very good. Uh, you know, averaging uh, almost a one-to-one walk to strikeout ratio all the way up the ladder in the minors. Uh, and it's not just banjo hitting. He doesn't just slap at the ball. Uh, you know, his triple A line was uh, a 959 OPS. So there's some, uh, some power and on base percentage there. Uh, small sample size, but uh, 70 at bats, but it looks like he can sting the ball a little bit. So he's going to get some run there. Yeah. And this is a guy, I think if you have some fab money left over at this time of the year and you're playing particularly in American league only formats, uh, this is Cal Stevenson might be a guy to take a look at because as you said, he was, he was smacking the ball with some vigor when he was in AAA and, and has always had that terrific plate discipline. Could be somebody who's sneakily, sneakily helpful down the stretch. If you have an outfield opening that you need to fill and you might have an outfield opening you need to fill. If you have Michael Brantley on your roster, he's been on the IL for weeks now with a sore shoulder and there was no real news except general manager James Click appeared in front of the media and didn't give them an update, didn't give them a projected return date and closed ominously by saying with every passing day, you have to kind of take an honest look at it. That does not sound good for Michael Brantley or his fantasy managers. Jock Thompson covers the Astros for playing time today. So what's the analysis here? Yeah, it can't be good news. I think you and I last updated this one, the uh, the Brantley situation three or four weeks ago was right around the All-Star break. And the news at that point was he wasn't swinging a bat. He hasn't begun any activities. And now we're three or four weeks later and the news is the same. So that's that's obviously pretty bad news. He's no closer to returning. And the calendar keeps ripping off pages while he's sitting idle. So it gets that much less likely that there's going to be a sudden development of good news here. So, I mean, now you go back, he hasn't swung a bat since he went on the IL and in late June. So we've got him down to 20% playing time, which would be a best case scenario of a return in the last couple of weeks of the season. Uh, In terms of where that playing time goes, Brantley's out. And, you know, the, in terms of the hot hand, the recipient right now is Oledmiz Diaz, who has been absolutely tearing the cover off the ball for the last month or so. A 919 OPS over 89 at-bats and part-time work in July and August. Uh, you know, he's a guy who we normally think of as the backup infielder on this team who inevitably picks up at-bats when Altuve or Bregman or somebody is out for a while. But now he's picking up at-bats in the outfield, too. And he's because he's producing, he's stealing the at-bats from the likes of Chaz McCormick and Jake Myers, who we would have initially thought would benefit from the Brantley outage. But Diaz is hitting so well, they basically just can't sit him down. So as long as he stays hot, I think he's the guy to look at. But McCormick and Myers are both nearby if Diaz cools off or they want to to take a look at those guys as they get ready for the playoffs. McCormick and Myers to me sounds like one of those late night uh, lawyer ads that you see on TV. Yeah, definitely a law firm. You know, (laughs) have you you slipped and fell? (laughs) Yeah. 
And speaking of slipping and falling, Red Sox left-hander Chris Sale underwent season-ending surgery on his right wrist, which he broke in a bicycle accident on Monday. I loved Chris Olson's line in playing time today at Baseball HQ. Short of actually being on the business end of a Cobra strike, it would be hard to imagine how Sale could be any more snake-bitten. And we might say the same of the Red Sox, who paid Sale pretty handsomely to get five and two-thirds innings. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I mean, you know, working in reverse chronological order, he's now fallen off a bike and is on the IL because in his second game back after Tommy John surgery, he got hit in the line drive, hit in the pinky with a line drive that broke his pinky. And while he was rehabbing for the Tommy John surgery, he broke a rib in ways we're not entirely sure of. And that delayed his return from the Tommy John surgery, blah, blah, blah. You go back. And since um, he signed his extension after the 2018 World Series win, they got roughly two-thirds of a good season of out of him in 2019 before um, he got shut down at the end of 2019 and then didn't have the Tommy John surgery until 2020. So basically since uh, the end of 2019, just about three years now in calendar time, he's pitched under 50 innings. So it's just been a long time since anyone has seen a healthy and effective Chris Sale for more than, you know, quite literally a couple of days at a time. Um, In terms of what the Red Sox do here, this leaves a rotation spot for Cutter Crawford and Josh Winkowski right now. Michael Waka's due back soon. So one of those guys is likely to get squeezed, but that kind of dovetails with the news in the Red Sox bullpen, which I think is also on our agenda here with yep. uh, Tanner Houck, right? Yeah, they put Tanner Houck on the 15-day IL on Tuesday of this week after an alien spaceship landed on him. I'm just kidding, of course. Back inflammation was the diagnosis. Uh, Houck had been closing games, so what happens in the Boston bullpen? Yeah, so these news items do sort of dovetail together. Starting with the bullpen, uh, you know, Garrett Woodlock has been back for a couple of weeks, and they were using him in a sort of a multi-inning um, high-leverage relief role. I think that might morph into more of a sort of co-closer situation with John Schreiber, who's really the only other effective guy in this bullpen right now. Um, Caleb Orr got called up from AAA Worcester. Um he ended up pitching in the 11th inning uh, of a game the other day and took the loss. <clears throat> but in terms of how this ties back to uh, the starting pitching situation, when Waka comes back, I'll just take an educated guess that when Kowski stays in the rotation and Crawford moves to the bullpen, just because Crawford has a little more experience and success in that multi-inning relief role, and if Whitlock has to sort of move into the late inning, multi-inning role, it might be Crawford who's better suited to be the two or three inning reliever coming in in the fifth or sixth and trying to get a game right from a short start from the likes of Rich Hill or a Waka to a Whitlock or a Schreiber. So I'll just, uh, you know, you can, we can come back next week and you can tell me how I got this wrong, but I'm going to sort of take an educated guess that Winkowski stays in the rotation and Crawford starts trying to help fix the bullpen. I do a lot of crossword puzzles, the New York Times crossword every day, and ORT turns up as an answer more often than you'd think. Do you know what an ORT is or what the clue would be in a crossword puzzle? I have no earthly idea. It's a piece of food that falls out of your mouth. 
Oh, and apparently okay. there's a word for that. And uh, of course, ORT is a three pretty common letters and sometimes crossword puzzle guys need to build a three letter space that has ORT in it. And that's what they use. So now maybe they can use Boston right-hander Caleb blank and, uh, change this, change it up and make it a little harder. Uh, in New York, the Yankees placed outfielder Matt Carpenter on the 10-day IL with a broken left foot. Uh, Chris Olson again for playing time today. Where does Carpenter's playing time go? It's amazing how this suddenly became actual really bad news for the Yankees when, you know, <laughs> he's only, he was only added, what, six weeks ago and, right. you know, it was kind of a complete afterthought at the time. And now they're like, oh my God, we lost Matt Carpenter. What are we going to do? <laughs> Yeah, that that is exactly what happened, isn't it? You know, at, at the time, I remember there was a lot of speculation that he'd be on the roster for a week or two till they got some IL stuff sorted out, and then he'd be sent to AAA and bide his time. And instead, he hit eleven home runs in his first fourteen games, or whatever it was, and uh, became kind of a linchpin on their entire offense. Exactly, and now he's uh, you know his season's probably over with the with the broken foot here, so. Uh, in the short term, it's Miguel Andujar who got called up to the roster spot, and he may get a short-term bump in playing time. Marwin Gonzalez, Tim LoCastro also in the mix here, but really all three of them are placeholders until Giancarlo Stanton comes back. Uh, he's now doing baseball activities, and I think that means he's prob- will probably get news I would guess the beginning of next week that he's going out on a rehab assignment. And then after that, uh, Stanton will, you know, if he goes through all of that without setback or other injury, which I, I guess is not a foregone conclusion. Uh, if he makes it all the way back, then these go, then I would assume it would be Andohar who gets bumped back off the roster at that point. In Toronto, the Blue Jays placed Tim Meza, left-handed reliever, on the 15-day IL. He separated his right shoulder, not his pitching shoulder, in a play at the plate, a big collision, I think, with uh, Nick Gordon of the Twins. Uh, Trent Thornton had been sent down to AAA. They called him right back up. Uh, What's going to go on now in that Toronto bullpen, which I don't believe now has a left-handed pitcher in it at all? Yeah, I was going to say Thornton takes the roster spot, but he can't take the lefty specialist spot, right? Because he throws with his other hand. So uh, really bad news for Meza. He's probably done for the season. Obviously, it's too late for the Jays to go out and trade for another reinforcement. So for now, uh, we've zeroed out Meza's playing time. Thornton picks up a couple of uh, percentage points of projected playing time, and the Blue Jays pen will just shuffle and figure it out, I guess. I was guessing that Adam Simber's role might be a little bit enhanced. He's been moving sort of down the pecking order of late, but he's held left-handed hitters to a 109 batting average this year, and he was getting more Ks versus uh, left-handers than Meza was. So it may not be the biggest news of the week, but keep your eye on Adam Simber as perhaps getting into games in those left-handed hitter situations that might have gone to Mesa earlier. Uh, Toronto also signed a guy from your neck of the woods. Jackie Bradley Jr. was released by the Red Sox last week, and Toronto grabbed him up, signed him to a one-year deal, sent down Otto Lopez and DFA'd uh, Matt Peacock, a, a pitcher. And Tim Cavanaugh covered all of this in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Is signing Jackie Bradley the small news that it feels like? Yeah, I think so. I held out hope for quite some time that Bradley would eventually remember how to hit, but it's been a long time now since he has, and the Red Sox obviously gave up hope of him figuring that out. Uh, you know, you can if you squint, you can see the utility to the Blue Jays. You know, he plays good defense. 
he'll be a waiting defensive place replacement or pinch runner. Obviously, George Springer's banged up, so they're trying to you know mix and match their outfield a little bit. He gives them some options there, uh, and of course, he's left-handed, much like Zimmer was, uh, which I guess helps them from a platoon, from from a platoon perspective because that lineup is pretty right-handed, as we've pointed out a couple of times. And if you want to have an extra guy in the lineup who really just can't hit, he might as well be left-handed, I guess. I Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm squinting to find good news, for, good, good news for Jackie Bradley here. I think it's going to be more of the same. Yeah, I've been watching Zimmer all year, and he comes in late innings to play center fielder. He's a really good center fielder, Zimmer is, because he can really run. But, of course, Jackie Bradley's a really good center fielder, and while he's only OPSing 578, that's still like 125 points better than what Zimmer was ringing up. So they'll probably lose a little speed uh, on the base pass as far as Zimmer was also used as a pinch runner pretty regularly. But I think this is a, an offensive upgrade of small proportion for uh, Toronto. In Los Angeles, the Angels will place outfielder Mickey Moniak on the I.L. with a fractured left middle finger. Oh, Mickey, what a pity. You've a broken hand. Now the Angels outfield will be sorely undermanned. Sorry, a big Tony Basil fan here. Uh, what does Jock Thompson say is going to happen to the Angels in the outfield? Oh, you made my day, PD. That was great. <laughs> um, you know, Moniak had jumped into the a big hole in center field since... Brandon Marsh uh, had been traded to the Phillies, and of course, Mike Trout is still out. So um, we were probably about to give Moniak more playing time as Trout, you know, Trout's return keeps getting delayed. But now he's probably out of the picture for most of the rest of the season, if not the entire thing. So Magnurius Sierra is the next man up. Uh, Steven Duggar was just acquired too. So those guys probably make, uh, I don't want to say a good platoon, but I'll logical platoon shall we say in center yeah. field um, <laughs> the, the pieces fit even if they're not uh you know the, the rendering upon them is not beautiful uh so and that's probably how the picture stays until we get some better news on trout and that's uh that does not appear to be imminent they do run a little though don't they those two guys they do sierra especially um you know i think we talked about it with uh you know, we might have touched on that when we were talking to Jock a couple of weeks ago. Right. Uh, you know, there's, you know, as long as he's got an opportunity and he'll have the good side of the platoon, uh, you know, his calling card skill is speed. And this team does run a little bit. So if you're desperate for eight to 10 stolen bases down the stretch, this might be a place where you'll find them. Although I think you'll probably pay for it in all the other categories. And finally, Ray, a Minnesota outfielder, first baseman Alex Kirilov is going to have surgery. It's going to end his season. Rick Green covers the Twins for playing time today. And normally you'd think that this is generally always bad news, but Kirilov might actually be glad he's done for this season. Yeah, boy, he got started late and never really got going. Uh, just, a, just a rough go of it. He slashed 250, 295, 398 with three homers. Uh, you know, not the production we were looking for from him and of course the uh the wrist surgery that ends his season is a a recurrence or a relation to the wrist surgery that ended last season so now i think we've got to call that chronic and you know not at all a sure thing that he comes back 100 in terms of what the twins do for the rest of this year jose miranda had outplayed kirilov anyway so now his play time is more assured Luis arias is also there and those guys will probably cover most of first base and some outfield time Byron Buxton still, of course, 
you know, is the linchpin of this lineup, but is still limited to part-time work in center field. So you'll, you'll see Kepler in one spot. Um, and then, you know, Nick Gordon, Jay Cave, and uh, Gilberto Celestino probably covering the other two spots in some combination when Buxton's not out there. So <clears throat> the most interesting of those is probably Cave, but where's it Cave? But it's been um, since 2018 since he had an interesting little half season where he smacked 13 homers in 280 at bats. But since then, it's, uh, you know, we haven't seen much of it. Gordon keeps finding at bats. He's the most versatile versatile of these guys, and has been hitting uh, spattering of home runs to go with the uh, the stolen base output we expect from him. He's another guy where speed is sort of carrying a skill there. Uh, so he's been the most productive from a fantasy perspective, and you know more playing time for him is only good news. Uh, Celestino's been is probably the best fielder of the bunch, I think, but he hasn't done much with the 168 bats that he's gotten so far. Yeah, the Gordon uh, Gordon has twelve dollars in fantasy value according to Baseball HQ's valuations, which isn't nothing. You know, at at the bottom of your roster, if you can get a consistent twelve bucks, you're probably going to have a pretty successful team. Uh, Ray, thanks very much for helping us have pretty successful teams, and we'll talk to you again next week. Excellent, PD. Take care. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at Baseball HQ. He's coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. But I want to remind you about another great article at BaseballHQ.com, The Arsenal Report. Analyst Tanner Smith looks this week at the best pitching version of Shohei Otani based on his new pitch mix. And don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It'll be coming up next Friday with another expert interview plus our usual great National League and American League news analysis and commentaries. That's next Friday on another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug, welcome back. Thank you. Let's talk about the trading fallout from the... uh, Relievers Buyer's Guide that you published on August 7th, a few days ago, we assumed that Devin Williams would take over the Josh Hader closer role in Milwaukee after he was traded to San Diego. But since the trade, Williams has had four outings. He's 0-2 with one save and a 967 OPS against, and that's against Cincinnati and Pittsburgh. So not exactly the 27 Yankees. Baseball HQ team analysts say that Williams and Rogers are going to split the saves how likely do you think it is that Milwaukee gets Rogers back into the saves mix after his struggles in San Diego? Um, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but I do think that Craig Council likes to have established roles. And, you know, Williams was in the eight inning role and Hader was in the nine inning role, even when it made no sense from a right versus left handed standpoint. Council didn't care about that. And I still think that Council's the same manager that he was then. Um, what's interesting is that Rogers was in the ninth inning role. He could have left Williams in the eighth inning role and put Rogers in. And what he's tried to do is the opposite of that, which is, it's just been kind of interesting. So he may change the role of, of a given uh, reliever, but he seems kind of set on the idea that Williams is his ninth inning guy. And, and as long as he stays that way, I think that's how it's going to be. And Rogers probably will only fill in, on those rare occasions where Williams isn't available. 
unless Williams continues to pitch poorly, in which case, um, you know, then Rogers will get a shot probably. But I don't think Rogers has been all that great either um, since the trade. Um, I don't know what it is, but um, they'll figure it out. But when they do, Council's a guy who's not going to mix and match with with those two excellent relievers. He's going to have set guys, and right now it seems to be Williams. Trevor Rosenthal, I think you picked him up in tout, actually, on a speculative kind of pick in the end, maybe in reserve. Uh, he was included in that Milwaukee deal. Any chance that he figures into the saves picture? Well, he's running out of time. I mean, yeah. the problem for Rosenthal is he hasn't pitched um, in anger yet. And so, you know, when he does finally make the staff, you know, at some point, I'm sure they plan on it. Um, he'll probably pitch in low leverage, and if he's succeeding there, then he'll have to move up into a little more leverage and then maybe at the, some point get towards the back end of games. I think Milwaukee thinks if they make the playoffs, they want to have you know an extensive bullpen, and it would be nice to have Rosenthal helping Williams and Rogers in that way. But I, I very much doubt that they're even counting on it. It's more that it would be nice if, if he could do that. So um, we just have to see. I really doubt that he will. He may, you know, he may vulture a save somewhere along the way. But I would, I would take the under even on that. In Minnesota, manager Rocco Baldelli is kind of the opposite of Craig Council in Milwaukee in that he was one of those guys who really liked to mix and match his bullpens and play the Tampa style. Of course, he came from there, and. He was gradually moving towards fireballer Juan Duran, but you said in your bullpen buyer's guide that those of us who are counting on Duran to close games better wait till next year, despite Duran having better skills, including an eight-point strikeout minus walk advantage. How long do you think the leash is going to be for newly arrived closer Jorge Lopez, given Baldelli's penchant for not having an established closer? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's going to be Lopez getting every save opportunity for the rest of the way. I think it's more that Baldelli looks at Duran as his high leverage reliever. So when he's in a sticky wicket, he wants to put Duran in the game, regardless of what inning it is. And typically that's not a clean ninth inning, as you've seen throughout the year where Duran's not getting those save. I mean, you know, if you're getting your best reliever into save opportunities, it would easily be Duran. And he's not getting those opportunities. So I don't think the, um, you know, the addition of, of Lopez helps Duran. If anything, it just gives um, Baldelli an extra guy to use at the end of games. And so far, even with uh, not doing great, you know, um, it's been Lopez. Um, but, you know, Minnesota can only tolerate that so long. And, and, you know, they still have all those other guys that they had before they traded for Lopez. So I don't know that Duran really has any chance of just taking over the closer role and picking up the saves that we were hoping for uh, earlier in the season based on how how excellent he is um, from a um, skill standpoint. Meanwhile, of course, uh, Baltimore was the team that sent Lopez to Minnesota, so uh, replacement Felix Bautista has seemed to roll into that closer role, and he's actually been more skilled this year than, than uh, Lopez was, is... Bautista really locked into that closer role there, do you think? I think so. I think Bautista is probably, for me, one of the top uh, five or six um, relievers who are who's closing games. I mean, I think his skill set is incredible, and I think Baltimore is trying to make the playoffs. So I think Bautista could – he could end up – I mean, I'm this is, a, this is a going on a limb a little bit, but I wouldn't be surprised – 
if Bautista has the most saves, if you added August and September together when all is said and done. He is a highly skilled player on a team that's peaking at the right time, um, and they have guys that can bridge the you know to him. So um, all, all systems go there, and I, I mean, if, if Bautista was available in uh, AL Tau, I would have paid any amount of money to try to get him on my team, I can tell you that. Yeah, ditto. Somebody picked him up uh, way in advance of that just because, you know, setup guys often get onto uh, tout rosters because of the uh, advantage they have as Lima type guys at the ends of bullpens. Even if they're not getting saves, it's a consideration that you don't face in most 15 team leagues or, or shallower leagues like that. Uh, Chicago traded away David Robertson, of course, and that leaves Rowan Wick, who kind of flopped in the role. What's going to happen there? Not that there's going to be many saves to, to be had. Oh, I just think it's a mess to be avoided. Um, there's no right answer there at all. Um, the one thing that I have I always laughed at is when we were in Arizona last fall, Rowan Wick was one of the pictures of players that the Cubs had touted um, outside of Sloan Park. Like, these are our stars of the future. And it's just kind of funny to me because every time I brought it up, everyone's like, yeah, not Rowan Wick. You know, <laughs> maybe the other guys, but not Rowan Wick. He's not good. I mean, no kidding. And um, But if he's their best guy, I mean, it's just going to be a mess for the Cubs uh, for the next two months, no matter what they do. Um, but, yeah, I would get no one if I if, if I could help it. And if I had to have, like, one save, I guess I'd get Wick. But it, it comes at a massive cost, and that's an ERA and whip. The guy in the bullpen who has the best skills looks like Brandon Hughes, the left-hander. Being a left-hander sometimes disqualifies guys from being closers in the manager's eyes. He's the only one of Wick, Hughes, and Michael Rucker who has a strikeout minus walk rate over 20%. Wick's down around 12, which is seemingly would disqualify him from being a closer. Any chance that Brandon Hughes is worth a pickup? Um, I would I would say no. Um, but, um, yes, from a skill standpoint, he's not, he's the least bad player. Um, but I, I still don't think that he's a guy I would want, um, closing games, um, unless I only faced uh, left-handed batters or something. I mean, I, I just, but, but, you know, is he better than a wick? I mean, isn't yeah, everyone? I mean, you know, it's <laughs> not like, uh, it's not like there's a high bar he has to jump over. Um, so it's possible, I think, but I just think it's going to be a mess and that, uh, poor, uh, David Ross is going to be, uh, feeling his way through the dark pretty much every time he has a lead, um, in a game. Meanwhile, after the trade, David Robertson got the first save in Philadelphia, but you said in your baseball HQ column that Sir Anthony Dominguez is still the more skilled pitcher. So how do you expect the Philadelphia situation to play out? Well, I think their new manager has evolved from their old manager, and they look at Dominguez more as a, a highest leverage guy, a bit like uh, Duran in uh, Minnesota. So uh, Dominguez could obviously save games, but I think they're comfortable with Robertson saving games and Dominguez getting more flexibly into games when they really need to try to hold a lead with the highest leverage. So that's how I think they're going to use their right-handers. I think their left-hand um, side is a little more precarious, um, clearly. But, but yeah, I think Robertson will get the saves uh, in Philly, and I think it's because they know Dominguez is their best uh, reliever. In Atlanta, they acquired Razel Iglesias at the deadline, and I wonder with that 
and A.J. Minter outskilling both Iglesias and Kenley Jansen. How secure is Jansen's role, given his heart issues and all those other things in Atlanta? Well, Jansen's been pretty good this year, um, probably a lot better than I would have guessed uh, preseason. But he can't slip. I mean, there's so many options that Atlanta has. They could they could lose Jansen and not even blink and be fine because they have other lefties beyond Minter and they have other righties after uh, Iglesias. So um, I think Iglesias is quite the luxury item that Atlanta bought. I'm not really sure what that was about, but I guess, uh, you know, they, they saw an opportunity and took it. Um, but I think Jansen's the closer until he isn't. And so, but he, but the rope is probably not as, as long as it would have been uh, previously. I wondered when I saw the trade if Atlanta's got some concerns about their rotation and they think when they get into the playoffs, they're going to be in a lot of games where there's, you know, five relievers getting into the mix somehow. Well, I think that served them last year. I think that's exactly what they did through the playoffs last year and beat Aces. You know, I've, I've been reading a lot about how the Mets are, are can't be defeated because they have DeGrom and uh, Scherzer. But I can tell you that if you're in the game uh, late and those guys come out, then, uh, you know, a bullpen like Atlanta's is the kind that can that can beat you in the playoffs. I don't know about during the regular season every day, but um, it is, a you know, I would be very concerned if I had Atlanta next up during, uh, you know, a short series. That's for sure. I think that bullpen model, uh, Kansas City started it, I think, a few years ago when they had that 7-8-9 inning thing where they just threw those guys out in every circumstance and, and they were basically unbeatable after six and, and Atlanta seems to have even extended that out. Gosh, uh, we've talked about uh, Iglesias and Minter and and uh, Jansen, but Colin McHugh's in that, in that uh, bullpen. I heard that they've just called up Huascar Inoa. I don't know if he's going to be in the uh, bullpen or not, but that bullpen is maybe the deepest in all of baseball. And it, it appears that unless the playoff format changes, that's going to increasingly be the model for all the teams because nobody can afford to have, you know, four top line starting pitchers. Right. I mean, I think that what teams often do is they take their lower level starters and try to make them relievers on the fly just at playoff time. I wonder if teams are going to be more inclined to take those guys out um, a little bit earlier of the rotation and and try and get them in the mode of of you know of being in relief and seeing how they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you can't have a deep enough bullpen these days um, because you want to be able to answer whatever the other team's trying to do to you with their uh, available bats. I read somewhere that. Somebody predicted that not right away, maybe in the next five or 10 years, that teams like Tampa Bay are kind of paving the way for uh, teams to basically not have to basically do what you did in Tout Wars this year, not have any starting pitchers and have a, a whole bunch of two, three inning guys who can be rotated in and out on matchups and arm angle and all of these kinds of things. And because they're much more fungible. If you're uh, relying on Jacob deGrom, for instance, and he doesn't pitch for half the year, you lose half his starts or three quarters or whatever it turned out to be. And meanwhile, for one Max Scherzer $40 million contract, you could probably have a pretty decent 13-man bullpen on, on just the $40 million. And because they can swap those guys in and out as soon as they get hurt or as soon as they get, you know, uh, ineffective, then down they go and we'll find somebody else. Do you think that that's a, 
something that we're going to see, especially in the budget-limited teams over the next, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years? Um, I'm not sure. I think if, if you ask Tampa, they would they, they would really like to have Tyler Glass now pitching for them right now, you know, and starting games. So I think from their standpoint, you know, we can afford two or three of those kind of guys if they're healthy. You know, McClanahan's doing amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, they're not not pitching him because uh, he's not a reliever. Um, but I do think you can mitigate the loss of a glass now if you have those kind of relievers. And then the thing that I think that's most innovative by Tampa is that they use relievers almost as a as a very liquid currency. You know, it's hard to trade superstars and get value back. Relievers, you can trade. Well, you know, well, you know, what's how many relievers is this guy worth? Four. Well, just give you four. You know, or whatever. Yeah. So um, it's and they are constantly getting relievers back as well from teams who don't value them. So, you know, when they're trading with, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a a trade they've made, but, you know, they'll get a player, but then they'll get an arm thrown in who happens to throw 100. And you're like, well, that's a good pick for them. You know, and then two years later, that guy's, you know, in leverage for them. And it's it's kind of amazing how how adept they are at using relievers, though, as currency and. I, that I do think teams should be a lot smarter about and probably will be a lot smarter about. And as more and more teams get smarter about it, it ceases to be a viable strategy because it's you're not differentiating what you're doing from anybody else. Again, going back to what we were talking about earlier in fantasy baseball, if everybody's doing it, then nobody nobody gets any benefit. Right, right. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Doug, when you're looking ahead to 2023, and some of us are, given our positions in the standings, uh, what trends do you see affecting bullpen usage next year? Well, I just think we're going to continue to see this idea of the highest leverage reliever, which is what Greg Jewett calls the person who really is the best skill set in a given pen, but not getting um, saves because they're coming into games in this, even in the sixth inning if necessary, but seventh and eighth inning for sure to face, you know, those two, three, four hitters at a critical juncture in a game where they have a small lead. So, um, you know, and and you see that with Duran, we talked about that. And I think you're going to see more of that. I think you're going to see more of here is this really, really excellent wipe them out um, reliever not getting saves where we used to say, well, if you have that guy, you're going to get the saves sooner or later. I I just don't think that's going to continue to be true. On the Rates and Barrels podcast recently, uh, Eno Saris and Derek Van Riper were talking about closer strategy in fantasy drafts and specifically how likely it is that established closers move down a round or two from this year when some of them are going as early as the second and third round by ADP. How likely do you think that that is to happen and that the closers start moving back down the table? Well, there probably will be one or two that'll go super high, but after that, I think they have to move down. I mean, I, I honestly think this is because Phil Dussault, um, you know, won last year and said, "I hate closers, so I'm taking them earlier and earlier because I, I can't stand the, you know, having anybody but the best ones," um, and and I get that, but you know, you're, the opportunity cost is massive. Um, if you're in a league where you're not trying to win the overall, you know, you you can't afford to lose a great hitter in order to try and get a guy um, who may or may not pan out, you know, from an injury standpoint. And there goes your saves category. So 
I, I very much think they'll move back down. Um, I think they shouldn't have moved up in the first place. And I spent my whole time trying to figure out who to get. And in some cases, like, um, you know, like uh, Romano, it worked great. And in other cases, like Canable, it worked terrible. For those who do intend to pursue the established closer strategy next year, I mean, this year it was Hendricks and Hayter. Who do you think will be Hendricks and Hayter next year in those very early selections? Oh, it'll be, I think it'll be Edwin Diaz and Hayter. I mean, those are the guys who are tearing it up and are, you know, at the top of the chart. But, you know, you could have said Diaz when he was on Seattle and then had a few years in the wilderness too. And, um, you know, Hayter's had some trouble with home runs, um, a couple stretches this year and a couple stretches last year. But those are probably the guys at the top of the chart because the skills are just ridiculous. Um, You know, but you you would do better, in my view, to get, you know, a Felix Bautista three rounds later because the drop-off in value is not so high and you've actually added a better hitter instead than the, the drop-off there is much higher. So I don't know. I I, I tend to zag on, on that strategy. I don't agree with the idea of having to have the highest possible elitist um, reliever closer and then have them, you know, be Hendricks and not work out the way you hope. I've heard some people say that they think uh, Emmanuel Class A is in that elite of the elite argument because of his skills. How likely is it, do you think, that he climbs up into the top rank alongside guys like Hayter? Oh, I think he's amazing. I mean, that guy just throws bowling balls. I mean, nobody can even get the ball in the air if they hit it at all. I mean, so... You know, from a strikeout standpoint, he's not as skilled as Hayter and Diaz. From a uh, ground ball added to his strikeout, I mean, he's as good as it gets. It's uh, it's it's fun watching elite batters frustrated because they hit the ball as hard as they can, and it looks like it looks like they literally have, have hit a cannonball with a wet noodle. It's it's amazing. <laughs> Our Baseball HQ team analysts have 10 teams in Major League Baseball right now whose current closers are going to get 75% of the saves or higher. Hendricks, Clase, uh, Gregory Soto in Detroit I think is interesting. Presley, Barlow, the guys you'd expect. Uh, of the group with the seemingly most solid closers, whose hold on saves do you think is the least solid? Well, whoever has the weakest skills. I mean, you named Soto. Um, Soto is interesting because he's left-handed. And he's incredibly has great stuff, but his, um, you know, he has a lot of problems with walks. And so his skills aren't where they should be. And so those kind of guys, you know, they can go away really fast. I mean, look at Tanner Scott in, in Miami, how fast he went from he's the guy because he has electric stuff um, to, to, to basically back to where he was, where he's hunting for innings because he can't, um, he can't stop walking guys. So. Um, yeah, I'd say Soto is in that category for sure. I mean, whoever's the lowest skills among those 10 teams, uh, closers, those are the guys that I would get away from. And for me, I want to see at least a 20% strikeout percent minus walk percent. And if I'm not getting at least 20, then I'm, I'm a little iffy about the skill set. And I guess that's a rule you could apply, even if you don't know what the situation is going to be at the major league level. It's just a decent rule of thumb to not draft that guy in your own fantasy format, whatever it is. Yeah, if you can help it. I mean, I I have different columns for uh, 20% or higher, 
and below 20%. And they are, I keep those guys separate so that I'm not making a mistake because I see a name that I recognize and love. So um, I, I highly recommend, you know, that as a cutoff. And I know the difference between 19 and 20 is not much, but you got to have a cutoff somewhere. That's where right. I put my. I do the same thing in, in preseason. I rank them just from top to bottom and, and I don't draw a line anywhere in particular, but I certainly, that's the order that I would like to get those guys in. Of the other teams, uh, whose bullpens do you think look the firmest amongst the teams who don't look particularly firm? Um, I guess I don't know who's on that list. Um, so I, I don't know how to answer that per, really. Um, I, I really like, um, but I, I would do the opposite. I would get the guys who have the best skills um, who are closing on those teams. So um, I don't know who that is, though. And, and again, when I say the best skills, they may be a team, though, that uses this highest leverage reliever, and that guy's not going to get any saves. So, um, yeah. you know, you have to know the situation as well. If, you're, if it turns out that guy's in Tampa, you're never going to be able to get a guy. I mean, who's that guy? I mean, there isn't a guy. So you have a lot of high skills uh, guys, but, you know, you're going to be sharing saves with two or three other guys. So, you know, you have to understand the context of it as well. We touched on this, Doug, but how many teams next year do you think might go full on Tampa and adopt the 12 guys get four saves each model? Yeah, I don't think anybody. I think Tampa's the extreme and I think they'll remain the extreme, but I do think you'll see more of these Minnesota type models where you have the, an obvious best reliever in a role where saves are not the, are not the important thing. The important thing is getting through those two, three and four hitters at a critical moment late in the game with a small lead. Um, so I, I think you'll see more of that. And how about uh, co-closer type situations like your uh, Paul Seawald and Diego Castillo, Canela? How do you think those are going to be likely to occur on teams in Major League Baseball, and how will they be correctly valued in drafts? Well, I think that if you find them in a where you have two skilled guys who are sharing the saves, you want to get both of them if you can. And the way I value it is. What are the saves on that team worth? Let's say it's $20. One player might be 13 and one might be seven, but you've correctly valued that the two guys at 20. Um, again, though, um, the scarcity there is slots, right? You only have so many slots to put pictures right. in. So you have to worry about that if you're um, but but typically teams are, I'll say this, it, it's overdone because if you have nine slots. Let's say you have five starters you're really counting on and you have two or one closer you're really counting on. That's three more slots. Um, you know, you can afford to not get that really terrible starter that you're going to cut in two weeks anyway in order to try and make that happen and just see how it plays out, you know. Um, that, that would be my advice for, for um, auctions anyway. When I was reviewing your roster, Doug, I looked at that Seawald Castillo thing and I thought, this is a really excellent move. And, and I know that you had the all nine slots that you could mess around with as far as acquiring relievers, but you spent a total of, I think, $16 for these two guys and you got more than a $16 reliever out of them, counting the saves plus really excellent decimals. Everything about those two guys was really helpful to your team and would have been extremely helpful to anybody's team. And 
maybe it also gives you a bit of injury protection because if one of them gets hurt, the likeliest guy to pick up the extra saves is the other guy. Yeah, I mean, that was part of the strategy going in, knowing that I had nine slots to mess with. Um, I did not have to go and get Liam Hendricks, which was, thank you. I don't have the money for Liam Hendricks because I'm trying to get good hitters. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Doug Dennis from BaseballHQ.com. He's the bullpen's columnist there and does a tremendous job. Uh, I always like to wrap up these discussions, Doug, by looking at some boons and banes. There's not a lot of time left in the season, of course, but let's talk about some guys who are good bets for the rest of the season and bad bets for the rest of the season. We'll start in the American League. Who's a batter you think could be a boon? I really like um, Adley Rushman, the catcher for Baltimore. You know, he kind of started a little bit slow, but, um, man, he's been really good, has a really high OBP over the last uh, 30 days, seems to really know what he's doing. The team is clicking. It's kind of exciting and fun to watch the Orioles again. And um, so I'm on that guy. And, of course, he's on my Tout Wars team, so, of course, I'm going to plug him because I'm I'm happy that he's there. And you got him – you actually paid draft money for him at the draft. You didn't get him in the reserve round or pick him up in fab. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is in that league is that there's a number of guys that people are really um, are are bullish on, um, even though they know that the guy's probably not going to play in April or half of May, but they'll still get him. And he certainly was one of those. But you look at all the catchers in the AL, and you're not super excited anyway. So might as well, you know, get a fill in for six weeks and see what happens. Yeah, they're all kind of fill-ins. I think Chris Liss took Adley Rutschman in the regular part of the draft in a previous season of Tout, and I don't think Rutschman ever played in the big leagues that year. Yeah, Liss is a is is a big proponent of getting those guys and just seeing what happens because they don't cost a lot of money, and if at the end of it you end up uh, fabbing a guy anyway, what's the difference? Because you probably were going to fab the pretty terrible, you know, five or six dollar guy anyway. So I, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it's a it's a good strategy for sure. Uh, in the National League, who's a batter you think could be a boon the rest of the way? So I really like Alan Baum um, from Philadelphia, who's third base. Um, I really, if I were trying to get a little power boost, I might try to get, I mean, I don't know how you get him. You'd have to trade for him and still have time to do that. Um, but man, I mean, he's um, he's traded a little bit of his power swing to make more contact, and I think it's really been working for him. He's got a high on base percentage the last thirty days. Um, very excited about his skill set going forward. Over to the mound. How about an American League pitcher who could be a boon? Well, you know, this is not going to be. Uh, it's funny because I'm not going to give you any insight that people won't already have. But, man, I love Shane Bieber. I think he might be uh, the best pitcher down the stretch in the American League uh, among any of them. Um, and if he is, um, you know, Cleveland could make the playoffs because he's he's just that good when he gets rolling. And I think he's on a roll like that and probably can carry it for another two months. So Shane Bieber's my guy, even though, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a lot of people's top four or five. So it's not like I've given you great insight. Had a terrific start on Tuesday night. Uh, how about a National League pitcher who could be a boon? Well, here's – so I've gone the other way with that, and I am I would say Dustin May for the Dodgers. Dustin May has just come back onto the roster, and he's probably going to be a little bit rusty to begin with. But that guy has an amazing skill set, and it wouldn't surprise me if he is a force in the playoffs. And between now and the playoffs, he's just going to be getting better and better. 
And, you know, he's probably not on a lot of radars right now, but he will be because he's terrific. Over to the Baines now, back to the American League. Who's a batter you think is a, a Bane for the rest of this season? Well, what happened to Whit Merrifield, who in Toronto weirdly traded for too? Like, I guess you want a guy who's super versatile if you're Toronto to play all around because, good Lord, he's not played well all year, and I don't see why that would change. He's just – I don't know what happened to him, but he's just not getting it done. And in the National League, who's a batter who could be a bane? So here's a guy who was good at the beginning of the year, and I don't know what happened uh, lately, but um, Ian Happ for the Cubs. Maybe it's just because the Cubs are so horrible. Um, I'm not really sure what it is, but he seems to need a reset because he has had a poor last month, and I don't see that changing either. I just I don't know what's happened with Hap, but he's kind of um, struggling, and I, I don't see it changing. Over to the mound again, an American League pitcher who could be a bane? Well, I like this pitcher, but I have to say I think Cole Irvin is, um, is smoking mirrors, and, and I don't really – I expect him to have a downturn, um, a severe one. Um, because I don't think he's I don't think his skills measure up to how he's been performing. He could prove me wrong. He has been all year, but I would I would expect him to have a downturn. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who could be a bane? Well, I think Tyler Anderson for the same reasons. I mean, Tyler Anderson, uh, you know, he I've always kind of liked him as a late dollar guy in leagues or whatever, and he's always gets hurt or something's wrong. And this year he's having the best year of his life, but it's a little too good. He's, he's, he's okay. He's not that good. And I, I expect him to have a downturn also. One of those guys whose ERA starts with a two and his expected ERA starts with a four. So uh, keep that in mind when you're looking at Tyler Anderson down the stretch as well. Uh, Doug Dennis's Boons, Adley Rutschman of Baltimore, Alec Baum of Philadelphia, Shane Beaver in Cleveland, Dustin May of the Dodgers. His Baines, Whit Merrifield of Toronto, Ian Happ of the Cubs, Cole Irvin of Oakland, and Tyler Anderson of Atlanta. Doug, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Well, I'm on Baseball HQ um, doing a bullpens column that gets published every Sunday. I'm on Twitter, at DougDennis41. Um, and I always go to Arizona in the fall and watch the fall league games with everybody. So you can always find me there. I'm I'm very shy and retiring and not very approachable, so uh, sometimes people struggle, but uh, we make do. Well, Doug, I was hoping this would be fun, and it always is, and it, it was a game for sure, and very informative as well. Thanks so much for helping us out, and we'll see you in First Pitch Arizona. All right, we'll see you then. Doug Dennis is the Bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up. But one more Baseball HQ item I wanted to mention is The Eyes Have It, our prospect podcast. In this edition, Brent and Chris discuss the recently released Baseball HQ midseason top 50 prospect list. And they analyze some of the prospects who were traded last week before the deadline. That and the other items I've mentioned are only a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, 
pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So add it all up. You get expert content, plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Dodgers third baseman Manuel Vargas is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's growing into the total package, according to Los Angeles Dodgers Director of Player Development, Will Rimes, referencing a July 8th Los Angeles Times article by Jack Harris. Indeed, through 388 minor league at-bats in 2022, 22-year-old Los Angeles Dodgers third baseman Miguel Vargas has compiled a 291-381-492 slash line, leading to an 873 OPS. Additionally, Vargas has swatted 15 home runs and swiped 12 bases in 2022. Yeah, that sure sounds like he's grown into the total package very, very quickly. In fact, most scouts believe, according to MLB.com's Juan Tribio on August 4th, that Vargas has one of the best hit tools in the Dodgers system. Wow. More specifically, his best tool is his bat-to-ball skills with a mature approach at the plate, according to Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst, a closer look shows that Vargas's 83% contact rate at AAA Oklahoma City in 2022 effectively places him among baseball's best hitters, according to the tools and analytics available to you at BaseballHQ.com. Even so, the Dodgers arguably already have some of baseball's best hitters currently in the lineup. In other words, Vargas's playing time opportunities in Dodgers Stadium this season might appear to be quite limited. That's why 22-year-old Los Angeles Dodgers third baseman Miguel Vargas, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Yet despite the Dodgers' depth, we really love the bat, Andrew Friedman was quoted as saying on The Athletic on July 22, 2022, referring to Vargas. According to the August 4th edition of call-ups on BaseballHQ.com, this is a premium bat that still has untapped upside and measured power using an inside-out swing to reach all fields. However, Vargas's defense, per call-ups, might be a liability, especially for a team with apparent World Series aspirations. Then again, the Dodgers currently have a commanding 16-game lead over the Padres in the NL West and might be inclined to rest some of their older or more experienced players ahead of the playoffs, perhaps foreshadowing a September call-up for Vargas. Worth noting, Baseball HQ's Dan Marcus is July 18th Playing Time Tomorrow column on BaseballHQ.com identified Vargas as a possible second-half breakout candidate in 2022, citing concerns about the declining skill levels of Max Muncie, Justin Turner, and Chris Taylor. Once again, possible second-half breakout candidate, 22-year-old Los Angeles Dodgers third baseman, Miguel Vargas appears to be growing into the total package right before our eyes. It's our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. 
Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I'd like to talk with regular fantasy manager Woody Govan. Woody, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Patrick. It's really good to have you. Uh, I think this is a first for Baseball HQ Radio in that you're the first regular guy who's ever been a guest on the show. And uh, so congratulations, you've broken through and set some kind of record. I don't know if you're going to maybe put it in your scrapbook or anything like that, but I just thought you'd be interested to know. Uh, how long have you been playing fantasy baseball? How'd you get into it? About six years ago, From uh, there's a bunch of guys at work, and I joined a fantasy football league. So then the year after, one of the guys in the fantasy football league was playing a fantasy baseball league, and they needed another guy. I said, well, I'm not very good, but I'll, I'll try it. And they said, well, it doesn't matter to us. We just, we'll just take your money. So that's how I started. Woody, dead money, Govan in uh, fantasy <laughs> baseball. So uh, what format was that league, and have you played any other formats since? That was a uh, 10-team, six-keeper head-to-head. So I'm still playing that. Uh, and then since then, I joined a dynasty league in 2020. And then I've dabbled in NFF, NFBC. Out of all the ones you play, which ones are your favorites? I like them all because of the competition. But if I had to pick a favorite, it'd be the dynasty one. Because you get to learn about, about the prospects and trying to find that diamond in the rough. No pun intended. And uh, the uh, the the dynasty league is that like a home league, guys? You just a bunch of guys you know, or is it something online? Or how do, how does that work? That's a uh, CBS. The uh, it's a uh, dynasty league six that Rich Wilson does. Okay. Because he uh, he opened up a couple uh, in 2020. He opened up two more two more leagues, and we had a write in to see if we're allowed to join. So he, he's the commissioner of all the leagues. And when you joined the dynasty appeals to you because you get to build a team over time. And you mentioned looking at the prospects as well. How are you doing in that dynasty league and what, what are you doing right? Well, funny you should ask because my first, so it was in 2020, first year playing dynasty, I won it. No kidding. No, I don't know how I did it. It was just the very final week. There is a uh, two of us. We were hovering between 119 points and 120 points. And then I think it was like two days left. And then I got a couple more home runs. And then I took the championship on my first year. And so this is a rotisserie category style scoring? Yeah. And how many guys, uh, how do you get to keep your entire roster as long as you want, or is there some limitation on how many keepers you can hang on to year over year? It's uh 23, uh, on the roster and 25 minor leaguers. And you can keep them all? Keep them all. And there's no salary considerations or anything like in uh, keeper league? Nope. No salary. Who's your best player? I have Bregman and Story. Well, not so good for story this year. No. And how about your prospects? When you look at your prospect list, who do you have on there that you're really excited about? Who I'm really excited about? I have, for example, Marcelo Meyer, Matt McLean, Pete Crow Armstrong, Robert Hassel. Well, you must have been excited about Hassel getting traded uh, in that big deal. 
he's gonna hopefully get some get a chance to play now hopefully sooner yeah way sooner i would have thought yeah and uh i just saw a list of the most impressive guys who got traded and he was number two on the list i think uh, on one list and number one on the other list and i think he's the number one prospect on the uh Baseball HQ list, although it might be one of the shortstops that Cincinnati picked up out of the four or six shortstops that they picked up at the deadline. But yeah, Robert Hassel is definitely a guy that you got to be excited about in a dynasty league. He could have a long and fruitful career, that's for sure. Uh, you mentioned that you won that league when you started out. How have you, how have you done in it since? So I went from first the first year to 13th, and now this year... I'm hovering between fifth and seventh. Fifth and seventh is not bad. How how likely are you to climb up to the money? So first, second, third. It is. I'd have to sort of pray for a miracle because Rich Wilson is in fifth. I'm in sixth now, but the other the other teams, the first place has 124 points. I doubt it. I can do any do any better with what I'm doing right now. When you go into a draft, Woody, uh, how exactly do you strategize as far as what kind of players you want early, what kind of players you're kind of hiding in the weeds and hoping for? What is your strategy going in? See, I'm still in the learning process of the whole fantasy. And it was not until I think it was last year in the spring, I heard Jenny Butler on a podcast before the season started and she was talking about how she would pick one player from each round and the way she broke it down it was like a little light bulb moment it was a dimly lit light bulb but it was a light bulb moment (laughs) because the way she did it she said she works from the end of the draft to the beginning of the draft and i still trying to wrap my head around that because once i get to round 20 i'm i'm lost on who to pick but I'm still trying to learn that process because all podcasts, they usually just talk about the first three rounds. You're right. Yeah. And when you hear the same players over and over, you never hear about the middle or the end of the end of the uh, draft. And I think a lot of people say that the middle and the end of the draft is where drafts are won and lost. Cause in your first round, somebody's going to get Jose Ramirez. Somebody's going to get Trey Turner. You know, somebody's going to get Aaron judge. Everybody's going to get off to a pretty good start barring injury. But in the 20th round, now you're really starting to have to weed through exactly what you're looking for. It's a big part of roster management to decide, Am I short on steals? Do I need somebody to short my average? All of those kind of things. If I short my steals, am I killing myself in power? Those kind of decisions. So when you started thinking about this round by round strategy, is it like you look at ADPs or something and identify which one of those 15 guys, that's the guy you're going to target and second round, so on and so on down the line and try to pre-build a competitive roster? So... Like, so anytime I saw Jenny was a guest on a podcast, I try to listen to that and I do just did what you did look at ADP and this, okay. One to 15, depending on where my slot is to draft, I may have an idea for that player, but like I said, trying to learn all the ins and outs of the draft, I found the drafts I did this year, especially in the NFBC. I'm stronger in pitching than I am in hitting. Is that just because that's the way it worked out or is it because 
um, you're stronger at analyzing pitchers than you are hitters. No, it was more like everybody said you got in order to win, win your league, you have to get, have good pitching. So I think I sacrificed the power and went for the pitching instead of the power. I don't know if, um, sacrificing power to get pitching is the idea maybe, um, reducing the impact of it or something like that. You're, the thing about rotisserie style, category-based fantasy baseball, Woody, it seems to me is you can't sacrifice anything to get something else in, in the overall roster scheme of things. I guess you have to make sure that if you happen to have drafted Miles Straw, for instance, because you thought you were going to get a bunch of stolen bases, you weren't going to get anything else. And so you have to really work hard to balance off the the loss you took from that slot, especially he went in the fifth and sixth round this year in a lot of drafts because everybody was talking, there's no stolen bases and you have to get somebody. And for that reason, uh, I know a lot of players will not draft a Miles Straw or a Billy Hamilton back in the day or those kind of guys who are literally single single category only. I mean, you could have expected Straw, if you drafted him, would get some runs for you, but he wasn't going to get home runs. He probably wasn't getting much of an average and so forth. So when you go in there, do you look at, would you look at a Miles Straw? See, and that's the thing. When I was listening to podcast, you always want to try to get your speed from what I've heard within the first seven rounds, if you can, if you can. And then that's where I found it was most difficult trying to find speed at the middle of the end of the draft. That's why I think I chose pitching instead of the, like, for example, I don't think Miles Straw has even a home run this year. No, he doesn't. So I, I have him in one NFBC league and like I said, he's not helping anything. He's only, he got me steals, a few steals, but average he's not doing anything for me and that's the risk i think you take when you build the roster that way and of course a lot of it depends on if you happen to have the good luck to draft early you can get a trey turner or or a jose ramirez where you're covering all the bases no pun intended because you're going to get power you're going to get speed you're going to get average you're going to get the whole package and that gives you a lot more leeway to start uh, messing around in subsequent rounds trying to find just a good balanced player, or you can not worry so much about speed if you got Ramirez or Trey Turner, but if you're drafting halfway through the round and the best guys start to be the big power guys and starting pitchers, it's a different story. Then you, it seems to me you spend the whole rest of the draft looking for speed. And with the, with the KDS on most of the leagues, I think I, w- I was ranging from the ninth spot to the 15th spot. By choice, or was that just the way the cookie crumbled? Just the way the cookie crumbled. I always try to go in, I put in like eighth as my first choice, seventh and ninth as my second choice, as sixth and tenth, and like that, and then I do four, three, two, one, and then thirteen, fourteen, fifteen kind of thing. But I it I think it gives you the illusion of control without the actual expectation of it. Although I find that I'd I'd just rather be in the middle of the each round because I don't like sitting there. I was 15th in uh, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational this year, and I found it just agonizing to wait for my turn after I took 15-16, and it was a slow draft. It was sometimes days before I got to have my next two picks, and then you get two picks in four minutes, and then you wait two more days. Yeah, I was 14th in TGFBI, and Jeff Erickson was 13th. So whatever player he didn't get, I tried to get. And then if I didn't get it, I knew he was, it was when I was coming back, he was going to get it. Yeah. So I'm in the same league with him. So 
one of my successes, I feel I sort I'd like, I look at the people that are in the leagues and I'm ahead of Jeff Erickson. So I think that's a win for me. Oh, definitely. If you're doing better than Jeff Erickson at anything in fantasy sports, I think you can pat yourself on the back. What about in the season, Woody, when you have to start looking at free agents, fab budgeting, that kind of stuff, what's your, what's your approach? I'm still learning that as well, because before I joined the dynasty league for, with CBS, I went on a fan tracks league the year before just to try it. And I ended up with $300 at by the end of the season still. So I was trying to figure out the bidding process. It'd be nice if I knew a little bit more like Vlad does on how he can win a player by $1, but I'm not that good yet. So it's mostly, I'm finding that I'm overbidding quite a bit, but I want to try to keep staying active, trying to improve. Because when it, with TG FBI, I was, I think, 10th. Now I'm in fourth place. And in uh, one of the draft champions I'm in, I went from 11th. Now I'm in sixth. So I'm trying. I'm, some bids I win, some, some bids I don't. But it's like the fab part is, and plus listening to podcasts, trying to get an idea of which players should you pick up listening to Tim McLeod and Rich Wilson on their uh, right. weekly waiver podcast. Tim McLeod, Canadian guy, by the way. That's right. And he was at First Pitch Arizona, and I'm sure he'll be back again this year. In fact, I asked him that. He was on the show not long ago, and he confirmed that he's he drives down there from Fort Francis, Ontario. Takes him like four days. <laughs> it would take you longer, I suppose, if you drove. But, um, yeah, Tim McLeod's a really great player. He really understands the game extremely well. I was just looking at the TGFBI standings. You're 15 slots ahead of me. So I don't know. That's not like, not like beating Jeff Erickson, but uh, it's just a little bit of a feather in your cap, I suppose. I, I did, actually, before I came on here, I did look at that and I did notice that, but I wasn't going to rub it in your face. Well, I appreciate <laughs> your restraint. Um, <laughs> season's not over. I'll just point that out. You're, you're only about uh, in eight, what, 60 points ahead of me or so, and you can gain or lose that in a day. So yeah, don't That's start true. rubbing yourself too hard on the back there yet there, Woody. Uh, anything <laughs> can still happen. Uh, so of all the players you've had in all your fantasy teams through your whole fantasy career, who are your favorites? Who are my favorite? I asked you first. The most of the shares I have is Alex Bregman. So he's one of my favorites because he's my first one I picked in my home league way back when. And for some reason, I can't quit Joe Adele. <laughs> All right. Well, if you've got him on your TGFBI team, I like my chances even more of catching up to you. Uh, what about uh, what about on the pitching side? Who who have you had over your over your career that uh, just was a guy you looked forward to having and looked forward to watching and all those kind of things? Well, it was just by... Like I had Manoa, so I like watching him. And over the last couple of years, I've been doing a little, a few trades and I had Joe Musgrove and I'll, I traded him unfortunately, which I shouldn't have, cause that was a bad trade, but who'd you get? Well, it was Musgrove, Gallegos and Yoki Cespedes, and I got Heliot Romos, Ed Howard, and Cody Hosey. All right, definitely a bad trade. Right. 
<laughs> but like I said, that's my, it was, like I said, it's my, it was my first year. It was the year after I won. So I'm still, like I said, still learning the trade process, but it's, I'm enjoying it just because I'm learning more and more every day. What was your best trade? My best trade. So this is way back. So yeah, this would have been the beginning of 2021 in July because I knew I was out of it, but the person I was trading with, they had a chance to get, they had a chance to win. So I traded Aaron Schunk and Jose Barrios, and I got back Robert Hassel, Shane McClanahan, and a round one, three, and five pick. Wow, not bad. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that one. I don't doubt you are. Uh, you mentioned that you like listening to podcasts. So where do you tend to go when you're looking for information for fantasy? So when I first started, uh, like I said, I was... I didn't know anything really about the players or anything. So I started like Googling podcasts. So I started with CBS fantasy baseball. Then after listening to them for a couple of weeks, they had guests on and I, uh, there was different names being mentioned. They mentioned Tim McLeod's name. So that was the first time I heard Tim McLeod's name. Then I found him and rich on prospect 361. Yeah. They mentioned Chris Welsh. So I found Chris Welsh and Scott Bogman. The first time I heard them, it was a Father's Day episode. And Chris was telling a bunch of Father's Day jokes, which was just driving Scott Bogman crazy. So I was hooked after them, just their interaction. And then they had Justin Mason on. So then I started listening to Justin Mason's podcasts. And then it just snowballed into Paul Spore, Jason Collette, Eno Saris, Ariel Cohen, DBR, Ian Kahn, Nano DeFino, Dave McDonald, Robbie Baseball, Ty Childs, Robert DiPietro, Jeff Erickson, Jenny Butler. So I've been, it's like just a snowball. So on my phone, I have so many, the podcasts and I try to listen to them every day. I noticed one name missing in that list of podcasts there, Woody. Oh, baseball HQ's on there too. Okay, good. <laughs> I was going to say, I'd hate to have to hang up right in the middle of this. <laughs> thing, but, uh, how much are you into the advanced metrics on, uh, of baseball? That is something I'd like to learn more about. And I just don't know where to start. When you first started, how did you get into like analyzing players? Oh boy, that's a story. I started playing fantasy baseball gosh, in 1991, I think. So I've been at it for 30 years. And I have to say that one of the first things I did was started getting involved in, um, talking about the theories of the game with the guy that recruited me into the, into my first home league. And we used to talk about the theory of it for hours. And, and basically because there's, there wasn't an internet or World Wide web, there wasn't podcasts. Uh, the only information source I had was books. You, you go down to the uh, Hotel Saskatchewan bookstore and you'd buy all like the Street and Smith and Mazeroski and all of those things that came out uh, over time. There was a couple of other guys who came and went that had real interesting stuff to say about val player valuation and draft strategy and stuff. It was all from books. And then once I joined Baseball HQ and saw what they were doing, 
I uh, started using the same data sources that they were clearly using and started using uh, Microsoft Excel a lot. I learned a lot about how to how to work with Excel over the years. And then as the other analytics came on stream, I wasn't an early adopter, but I was fairly quick to the game because I saw that this could be really helpful in writing for people who wanted to read interesting and helpful content at Baseball HQ. And it also was helpful for me playing the game as well. So um, it's starting now to get to the point where the math is beyond me. I'm not a math guy anyway. I rely entirely on Excel. But I'm starting to get to the point, as I said, where, you know, they're starting to talk about real physics problems like seam shifted wake and and all of these kind of things having to do with pitch movement. It's all measurable and you can get a million things about it from Baseball Savant, but getting the information and understanding it is often two different things. And it takes a, it has taken me a, a, quite a bit of work to understand it to the very limited extent that I understand it now. But I think I'm like you, Woody. I just listen to a lot of pods and I read a lot of stuff online. And, uh, you know, one thing kind of leads to another. It's like, uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes do you ever go into the YouTube rabbit hole where you look for something specific and then the algorithm on the on the right-hand side shows you something else. And before you know it, you're looking at old Roadrunner cartoons for some reason. <laughs> and you spend half an hour watching anvils fall on that wolf's head and you're dying of laughter. So... Speaking of advanced baseball metrics and all of that kind of stuff, you attended First Pitch Arizona last year. Was that your first time? It was. What'd you think of it? From what I heard on the podcast, I didn't really know what to expect because everybody's saying, oh, I'm going to First First Pitch Arizona. Can't wait to see everybody there. And I was interacting with like Michael Govier. I was interacting with Tim McLeod. Yeah. And Justin Mason. So Tim and I were going to meet up in Arizona, but because of COVID, he wasn't allowed to drive across the border. At oh, that time. right. Yeah, yeah. You could only fly out of Canada. Right. You couldn't drive down. So that was unfortunate. So I found out that Justin and Danielle, his wife, were going to be there the night before. So I went there. I went there. The I got there the Sunday before the the conference oh well first time in arizona yeah i want to do some sightseeing sure and have you ever been to the eye of the rock no i when when it comes to arizona i've never been out of greater phoenix well i figured i was be a little adventurous i was got in an uber i said okay i want to go to near the zoo he dropped me off at the wrong exit i start walking in the desert and I found the eye of the rock, but then I sort of got lost for half an hour, oh, gosh. 40 minutes in the desert <laughs> until I found my, I found somebody that actually knew where they were. And then they directed me where to go to the zoo. So I finally made it. So that would have been an experience. First time being lost yeah. in the desert. Terrible first pitch promo. A man dies <laughs> in desert while trying to find his way back to baseball conference. So yeah, lucky job for you that you got out of there. Uh, what else, what else did you find out at it? So then when I knew Daniel and Justin were showing up on Wednesday, so I went down to the bar, officially introduced myself, and then there's a few more people showing up. And then we decided to sit outside beside the pool, and there was Daniel, Justin, Michael Govia and his girlfriend Leanne, Eric Cross, Michael Simeon, Dave McDonald, Kevin Hastings, Aaron Cummings, Mike Curlin, 
and the one and only Todd Zola. So we all were chatting there. I brought a whole bunch of uh, Canadian beer and Canadian snacks that you can't get down the States. So I was sharing all those. How'd you get the beer down there? Right in my suitcase. Oh, jeez. A true Canadian. What kind of beer did you take? I brought a Moosehead Alpine and a Moose Light. Jeez, I have to say I've never heard of Alpine. Is it, It's a New Brunswick-based beer? The slogan is, you got to live here to get it. <laughs> there you go. And to hell with you if you don't, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> How'd the beer go over? Uh, they, they liked the beer. I was trying to, I was waiting for Eno to show up because I know Eno likes beer. He does. So I, I gave him one of the moose light because that's, I think that was all that's left. <laughs> no surprise there. Let me just say. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was kind of a surreal experience because I was listening to all these people every day on the podcast. Then I was actually sitting at the same table with them. And it just seems like. It was almost felt like a family reunion for people you haven't seen in a while. It just like, I was an outsider going in. The crazy cousin from New Brunswick. Right. <laughs> so I didn't know, like I said, nobody knew who I was. I, I went there by myself. I said, well, I, I want to learn more about fantasy baseball. I said, this is the best place to go. And it just, they, they welcomed me with open arms and it was awesome. Yeah, that's a story that I've heard a lot of times from people who, who go to the conference and a lot of them go back, uh, again and again for that reason, it becomes a place where you have friends and you want to go see them once a year and not only talk about baseball, but catch up with them as, as people that you just like because of the kind of people that they are. And, uh, we've all had that experience. I remember my first time. I was wandering around, Brian Rudd from Baseball HQ and I were wandering around like two sheep in a big forest and we didn't know what the heck was going on. And, uh, we were standing in the, in the bar. This was in the old hotel over down much closer to the airport. And, uh, I hear this big booming voice go, Hey, you're here for the conference. Come on and sit down. And it was Gene McCaffrey who even at that time was really well known in the fantasy baseball industry because of the wise guy baseball annual that he put out every year. And, and you know, it, it's the same experience I think you had where you're, you're in, in front of somebody who is really super established in this thing that you really like. And they have every right in the world, if they were Hollywood people or something, to just look down their nose and say, you know, there's the door, beat it, or, you know, take a selfie and then hit the bricks. But no, Gene, Gene called me and Brian over, sat us down, bought us a beer apiece, started talking about where are you from, what do you do, what do you like? I mean, he knew who we were, but not like we knew who he was. So that, that aspect of it is really a lot of fun. Are, are you planning on going back this year? I am. I already bought the uh, conference and I already booked my hotel. Get a flight yet? No, <laughs> the flights are a lot different this year. How's that? Well, last year I was able to leave Sunday morning from, from New Brunswick and I got to Arizona around two o'clock in the afternoon uh -huh. and then coming back, I left at 11 in the morning and I showed up at 10 at night. Well, well this year the flight leaves at five. And I don't get to Phoenix until around 11 at night at night. Yeah. But flying back, the flight's not until quarter to 11 at night. Oh, and I won't get back to New Brunswick until 10 o'clock in the morning. Well, that's, that's the way it goes. Uh, have you bought, uh, you haven't booked the flight yet though? 
haven't booked. I'm wait. I'm just waiting to see. Hopefully, new some more flights will come up. Yeah, don't hold your breath. Well, well last year, I, I went all out last year because I had all my aeroplan points. Oh yeah. So I went first class. Oh nice. And like the lounge seat. Yeah. It was fantastic, and the lounge area where you can get the free food and everything that was amazing. Yeah. Well, I just booked my flight today and don't be counting on any of that. <laughs> I can tell you there's a really, <laughs> I would say the amount of flights that was available that popped up on my uh, Air Canada search was probably half of what it was last year. The availabilities are just not there because of all the trouble they had. When you flew from, um, do you fly out of Moncton or Fredericton or? St. John. Oh, from St. John. So I'm presuming it's not a direct flight to Phoenix. Did you have to pass through Pearson? Yes. So like it, another nightmare this year. Well, and that's the thing last year, like I don't, fly, I didn't, I don't really fly that often, but it was so quick. I, I got off the plane and all I had time to do was go to the next a gate uh -huh. and I was jump right back on the next plane. That's good. A lot of those flights, you just end up cooling your heels for five and a half hours in, in like Calgary or someplace. But that's what I think's happening this year. Oh, is it? On the way back. I think there's one stops two not two hours, and then the next stop I think is in Toronto for another four hours. That's the drawback to it. I've just booked my flight today, and I'm direct both ways. I mean, I nice. pay extra for it, but uh, yeah, the the flight back is pretty good. It's it's actually at like one in the morning on Monday morning, and it gets into Pearson I think around six fifteen or six thirty. So I'll be back home by nine in the morning on Monday, and I'll still get to spend the entire day Sunday there. Which Sunday's an underrated day at First Pitch Arizona because. The official conference ends, I think, at noon, but then there's a lot of people who either they drove in and they can take their time going back to California or, or someplace else in Arizona or whatever, and then so they just end up hanging around the hotel, and that's a great time to sit around and just talk baseball with a whole bunch of people who got nothing better to do, frankly, and then so the hotel's in such a nice area. It's really good. I, I like it. I'm glad you're going back. It's, a, it's a, a lot of fun to have. What are you hoping to learn? or find out this year that you didn't get to last year. It'd be nice to rub shoulders with a few more people. Like last year on Sunday, Ariel was there and then him and I just started talking and we were talking about the home league. Cause the home league, I always <laughs> finished last. And that yeah. was the 10 team, six uh, players, six keepers you can keep and three minor leaguers. So he says, try going more relief pitching because then then I'll help you win more more of the categories. So right now, and this is the first time in the in the league that has happened, between second place and ninth place, there's a difference of eight points separating everybody. Wow. So it for every week there's a chance. So the top six make the playoffs. So I have everybody. I think this is the first year I'm going to make the playoffs. I'm hoping. So listen to Ariel is fantastic. Last year. There was some some of the uh, the side rooms where you were able to go. Yeah. Depending on which one you picked, you missed out on the other one, which was unfortunate. Because I, I went to one, and then I didn't go to the reliever recon one. And I guess everybody loved that one. That was Greg Jewett's. Uh, yes. Yeah, it was a really good session. I was in that session. Right, and that's one I should have been in. So I'm going to try to... I'm, when I see, when I f see the, the itinerary... When I look at that, I'm going to try to pick and choose which one I want to go to. Yeah. 
Well, that's good as long as there's there's all those kind of opportunities, and then there's the big, the main sessions where like Eno and those guys come out and and we have our facts and fluke show and stuff like that, which is interesting in a sort of wider vein. But those small breakout rooms, you're right, they're they can be really interesting because it's fewer people for one thing; they're more interested in the topic for another thing, and there's a lot more interaction just because you're six feet away from the guy who's talking, and sometimes they don't even use microphones; they just you're just standing there talking. You can go, Hey, but wait a second. You said blah, blah, blah. And I think blah, blah, blah. And then they'll, they'll engage with you and, and argue or discuss or however you want to frame it. So that's, uh, that's super interesting. And I'm glad you enjoyed the, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the experience. So I appreciate you taking the time for this. Uh, explain how you got to win this prize. If a prize is, is what it was. <laughs> it was the, uh, Potapalooza with Justin Mason. And for every dollar you donated, he put your name in a draw. And I was fortunate enough. I didn't even expect to win this, even though I knew that that was part of the, the, I heard I was part of the prize and it was the big cool thing to win. I didn't think in a million years I'd win it and have the honor of being on a podcast with you, which is my very first podcast ever. Oh, wow. Like, I didn't even know I won because like I work night shift. So the next day I played back the very last part on the, on uh, YouTube to see who won, who won the prizes. And then when they mentioned my name, I was just flabbergasted when, cause I won two in a row. I won a, a calendar for another uh, prize. So I went back to back. And so I was just, I was elated when I heard I was going to be on with you. And before we go, how come Woody? Well, years ago when I worked at the shipyard, bunch of us that worked we all were all new so we were trying to come up with cartoon character names and my best friend at the time or still is he came up all you got red hair big nose let's call you woody woodpecker (laughs) and and such a flattering explanation what more could you ask for well woody uh, i'm really glad that you were able to take the time and congratulations on winning the prize i hope you had fun uh, talking to me i certainly had fun talking to you and i'll see you in arizona Thank you, Patrick. I really appreciate this. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 32 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this Friday full edition, Doug Dennis, Bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and a special tip of the HQ radio cap to Woody Govan, a regular guy, fantasy owner, and our first non-expert ever on Baseball HQ radio. Doug's a terrific fantasy baseball manager, one of the best in the business at bullpen analysis, and just a great fun guy to talk with. And it was a delight to talk with Woody, a fellow Canadian from New Brunswick, I lived in New Brunswick for a while myself. And if you're keeping score at home, I'm now ahead of Woody in the TGFBI overall race. Neither of us is an immediate threat to the frontrunners who are about 1,300 points up on the both of us. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. 
I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition, expert interview, and all the usual great stuff, National and American League news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries coming up on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again next Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.